and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, a very special edition tonight, to the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn where for years we've been saying that the the stuff that used to be confined to these pre-dawn hours is kind of now leaked out all over everything. And you can see it on CNN or Fox or MSNBC or any of the other major papers or outlets or websites or social media 24-7. The world is, well, it actually isn't is, it has gone nuts. And what we're trying to do is to kind of steady the ship you know, the uh, steady as she goes, and to give you a kind of a course and a compass heading as a guide through these very, very turbulent waters. Uh, Tonight's show is very special. We're going to do something that we have never done on the other side of midnight before because it has not been time. Remember one of those cliches from the uh, Gallowine commercial I'd love to repeat if anyone's listening. You know, make no wine before it's time. Well, it has not been time before now, and now it is time. Time for what? Well, it's time to ramp up our activities, our campaign to bring the extraterrestrial truth of what is lying around us all over the solar system, beginning with the stunning, absolutely stunning, mind-blowing Uh, architecture on our own moon, which is now being quietly confirmed by separate national space program after national space program. We'll go through all that this morning. And this is culminating in the beginning tonight on the seventh tetrahedral spins of January 1 of 2023, because tonight is the beginning of a campaign. I mean, you've just gone through a bizarre four-day, 15-vote campaign among the Republicans to choose their Speaker of the House, given that they won four seats uh, last November. And as you have noticed, uh, things did not go very well for the GOP. It took them an extraordinary number of votes. I really thought that McCarthy was going to cinch it on the 14th, because, of course, that would have been perfectly symbolic, ritualistic, uh, tetrahedral, you know, 14 double tetrahedron, 14, the number of pieces that uh, Osiris was dismembered into, et cetera, et cetera. And Matt Gates just would not go along until number 15. Anyway, we'll get into all that and kind of the larger meanings uh, shortly. I want to start tonight, however, with a miracle, and that is not my word. That is the word of the mayor of Buffalo, New York, who this afternoon, in describing what happened and what is happening with DeMar Hamlin, who was a safety for the Buffalo Bills, who last Monday night, Monday night football, after a absolutely average, not anywhere extreme uh, tackle, uh, bounced up, literally, um, as these guys do. It's like, good grief, how did they do that? 
and promptly, shockingly, in front of millions and millions of viewers all over the world, collapsed on the field. And for in excess of 10 minutes, according to the clock and to the medical data we have, um, he was gone. He was dead. He was no longer in this dimension. And because his extraordinary medical situation happened with 25, 30, whatever, extraordinarily gifted, trained medical professionals and a whole ambulance and everything from paddles to, you know, intravenous injections to experts in uh, uh, cardiopulmonary uh, resuscitation technologies and techniques. In other words, the equivalent of a hospital staff with a crash cart waiting just feet away after working on him for in excess of 10 minutes. I've, I've actually uh, uh, seen numbers that said it was 19. And if it's 19, I'm betting dollars in Navy beans. It was 19.5. Anybody want to take that bet? Um, they brought him back. And then he was rushed to the hospital where he crashed again. His heart stopped again. He went into what is technically in the medical field, remember I lived with Robin for 20 years, cardio arrest, cardiac arrest. Um, his heart literally was not doing what it normally does, and he was only 24 in superb shape. And if you go to the first two items uh, on the other side of midnight, for those who are new to the show, the way you find these items is you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL, our homepage. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather grandly and mysteriously, the signed bean painting, beginning of the 2023 Enterprise Mission ET campaign. We will describe all of that this evening. We've got three hours. Click on that banner on the homepage. That will take you to the guest page. Right under the guest page, you will see uh, a big in yellow letters to listen to the show, under that, you see fast links to items. My name, uh, Barbara Honiger's name, and Georgia Lambert's name. Click on my name. That takes you to my section of that page, which we call, in honor of the old RKO Studios, where we actually had a development deal for a movie on some of our research many, many, many years ago. Um, it's called Radio with Pictures. And down that page, if you click on my name under that banner, on the guest page, it takes you to that section of the page where my items for tonight are listed. And the first two relate to uh, Damar uh, Hamlin, because the more I look at this, remember, it's kind of one of those situations where been there, done that. Now, I did not 20 plus years ago go into cardiac arrest. I just had a massive heart attack in a hotel room where unbeknownst to me days later when the doctors were conferring with robin who saved my life by rushing to the hotel and getting the emts to come and cart me away in an ambulance and i went to <clears throat> two hospitals first one and then another miami um, uh, heart and they did their magic and here i am but really the magic was involved something much higher and more interesting it was a combination of art bell reaching out to millions of listeners who had followed my uh, 
appearances on our show for many, many years prior to that awful, awful morning. And, of course, uh, Robin's exquisite follow-up, um, which is necessary. It's, uh, when, when, I, when I look at the statistics of what happens when you have major heart issues, particularly now that we're looking at this sudden cardiac arrest, uh, that's what item number two um, item number one, let me kind of be a little systematic here. Item number one, which really caught my attention, was an official statement a couple, three days ago from the Buffalo Bills, uh, who said in a very interesting manner, per the physicians uh, caring for DeMar Hamlin at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, DeMar has shown remarkable improvement over the past 24 hours. This was posted uh, a couple days ago. While still critically ill, he has demonstrated that he appears to be neurologically intact. This is crucial. We'll get back to that momentarily. His lungs continue to heal, and he is making steady progress. We are grateful for the love and support we have received. Um, that was a couple days ago. As of uh, today, this afternoon, uh, he has been removed from the intubation. He was on a uh, uh, machine assist for breathing with a tube stuck down his throat, which is very, very uncomfortable. He was sedated. He was actually put into an artificial coma, which frankly was probably a really good idea because it gave him time without external distraction to go within and to assist himself what else was going on. And I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, his progress continues to be quite remarkable. And when you look at item number two, because uh, I went and looked at numbers. I'm a numbers guy. So I went and looked. You would be shocked. I was shocked at the number of people per year in the order of three, 400,000 in the United States have this situation happen. And their survival rate from getting to the hospital to being, you know, uh, released as outpatients or just released, even for those who have a cardiac arrest situation in the hospital with full medical staff, crash carts are able to rush down the hall, you know, nurses yelling, uh, you know, stat, stat. The survival rate is on the order of 10%. 90% of the people in hospitals who have this die, regardless of the attention they receive. So that really made me kind of think about this. The thing that's missing, of course, is unlike DeMar, who had this happen in full view of countless millions all over the world on live television, all of these other incidents are known only to a relatively tiny handful of people, friends, family, hospital staff, whatever. And I believe, based on my own personal experience, where when Art went on that Monday night and announced to his millions of listeners that I was in real terrible trouble, the amount of love, the amount of prayer, the amount of attention the amount of hyperdimensional focus, because frankly, that's what I think is going on here, released something 
that against all odds, I mean, they literally uh, showed Robin in the days I was in uh, the second hospital um, uh, images of my heart. And she said that half of it was just black because it had been starved for oxygen. So it might as well have stopped because uh, the prognosis was if I survived and the odds were less than 50%, I would be an invalid. I certainly could not have come back to New Mexico where I'm at over 6,000 feet. The partial pressure of oxygen at this altitude is significantly less by a factor of, well, I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to make up a number, but it's not linear. It's, it's a logarithmic. The higher you go, the less oxygen, more rapidly the higher you go. So it's, uh, it's not like half of what it is at sea level. It's, it's somewhere in that vicinity. Anyway, I have not had a twinge in 20, 24 years. I mean, it was 98 to 2023. So I have, I'm in perfect health, except for these stupid headaches. I'm in really, really good health, and I'm not doing anything extreme. And I should not be here tonight, regardless of, you know, what happened, unless it had been for the short-term intervention, literally through a hyperdimensional connection. That's how I'm looking at this. Um, because of art's attention, the same thing only magnified by countless numbers, because Damar was the focus of world attention of everybody. 99.999% wishing him the best, the most, the most beneficent, the most extreme, positive, all the right things. And so when the doctors and the attendants and the experts surrounding him in the Cincinnati uh, Medical Center say he is showing remarkable improvement and he's now off the ventilator, and he's talking and he's talking and you know the story that the first thing he he's asked when when they uh, when he woke up because uh, he couldn't talk he had to write it on the pad was did we win and the doctors say you know not only are the lights on but there's somebody home in other words he is going to because people's attention is not going to go away now i can tell you again from personal experience that when public attention moved off me, when arts audience says everything normally happens, people's attention wanders because they, they have lives to live. They have their own situations. You know, you, you can't bring the focus of all those people forever. So it was, a, it was a relatively brief window, which, of course, is where Robin and her, you know, uh, technologies and techniques and homeopathy and all the things she did long after <clears throat> the public attention had gone away. The two things are crucial in concert. And as I started to read the item number two from the American Heart Association, it turns out that this situation of sudden cardiac arrest is the least advanced in terms of post-major medical trauma or condition. And it's because most people don't know what to do when someone around them suddenly, you know, falls down and has this extraordinarily rare but incredibly fatal problem. And that means we need more paddles. We need more uh, life-saving, uh, you know, classes, lessons. It isn't very complicated. Um, 
they were able to start uh, uh, cardiac uh, treatments, you know, with uh, chest massage and all that immediately. And then they brought in the paddles. Those were critical because he apparently had a what's called a fibrillating heart, meaning it was quivering like a bowl of jello within his chest, but it wasn't beating and pumping coherent blood. So his brain was being starved for oxygen. You know, his cells were dying. I mean, this is this is catastrophic if it goes on more than a few golden minutes. So he basically had the best outcome from the worst possible situation in that he was not in a hospital, but fortunately the hospital was there on the field for all of the players that night, as it is with all professional games. And there's an awful lot of this that occurs in in um, amateur football, in you know schools, high schools, and even grade schools where kids are playing, because what appears to have happened is something called commotio cardis, which is a Latin phrase for basically his heart got hard in exactly the wrong place at exactly the wrong time. And basically because the heart is an electrical instrument, it's like pulling the plug and the rhythmic neurological electrical function that keeps the heart beating in a rhythm was interrupted at exactly the wrong milliseconds to create this catastrophic condition. And as I said, hundreds of thousands of people die of cardiac arrest, not due to uh, you know this particular problem, but it's one of those factors which can create this trauma uh, instantly. And unless there is appropriate knowledge on the part of bystanders, and most of these things occur outside hospitals, not within, uh, the odds are that you're going to have a problem in life when you're not in a hospital. So there needs to be much more knowledge of this technique, much more knowledge of the problem, the trauma, what to do about it in those golden minutes. And of course, uh, electrical stimulation to restart the heart is critical, but that means you have to have you know, a crash cart somewhere uh, nearby. Now, since you know airlines figured this out many years ago and they have electrical stimulation paddles for exactly the situation, but they need to be in public places like, you know, uh, airline terminals and and supermarkets and malls and you know everybody should know where they are. There should be big signs on the wall saying, you know, electrical cardiac, you know, resuscitation equipment in here, that kind of thing. And maybe Demar's situation is going to create a public outcry so that what is a really, really major um, emptiness currently in keeping hundreds of thousands of people alive, I could not believe the fragmentary number of people who survive, and that's within a hospital. Outside, it's even... It's even worse because there's no available intervention by most people not knowing what to do before it is too late. Anyway, uh, what I'm really intrigued with is because of his immediate attention medically and then because of the incredible worldwide attention, I believe Damar Hamlin is going to become a poster child for the best of all possible outcomes. In fact, I heard one doctor yesterday afternoon 
saying based on what's going on that he could easily see that he will completely recover and will go back to playing professional football, which, of course, would be very, very dumb. But, uh, you know, that's that's his choice. Now, um, there's a whole bunch of other things that we can talk about and um, what I might want to do if there's enough interest in this uh, is to get someone to come on who could give us more professional assessments of A, what happened, and B, what can be done to, uh, uh, you know, take this incredible potential tragedy and turn it into a positive for so many other people. But it just seems to me that there's something very, very unusual here that we should kind of not let slip by. Because I think there was this magic coalition of the, the interested, the available, the attention, the physics. Uh, some of you may, you know, have listened last Sunday night when we were talking about uh, of things to come, the predictions for things that might occur in 2023. And I started the program with uh, one of my friends and colleagues, Rick Levine, who, as I said on the show, is the only um, truly admitted hyperdimensional astrologer that I know. And that's the physics behind astrology, if you're kind of wondering. And we talked about all the weird things that were happening electronically to the show that night that were kind of like a show and tell because things really were not working and we were in what's called Mercury retrograde. Well, the model is that in these situations where you have major planets, and we have two now, Mars and Mercury, in retrograde geometrically as seen from Earth, the physics is being stirred backward, which means it's being amplified. It was in this amplified window that this occurred to DeMar. And it's really weird because that night after we got off the air, I was telling uh, Rick on the, on the air that I've got this weird LED uh, um, chandelier in the, in the kitchen which has stopped working regularly years ago, but it isn't really called it quits. It kind of sits there and glows. And every once in a while, for a period of hours or days, it lights up normally. Now, LEDs are not like incandescent bulbs. There's an additional digital component. There are chips associated with LEDs. And I believe the slight change of the physics which interferes with electrical current flow and voltages is enough to trip the chips to where they're, quote, momentarily or temporarily healed and the light functions the way it normally did when we bought it new. That light, which had been on, um, I'm sorry, had been off for several weeks before, that night after the show suddenly turned on. And it stayed turned on through Monday, through Tuesday, and only went off again. And I've sent emails to Rick, so I have this documented, on uh, Wednesday night. So it's in that window. If I'm reading the LED correctly, the change of the physics literally triggered that light to function normally. Well, that's the same window in which DeMar Hamlin experienced his potentially life-ending event and then the subsequent follow-up which was what happened after if again the model is correct the physics was at enough of a different level that his event 
and the public attention, this extraordinary focused attention of millions of separate consciousnesses, if I can say that, on him made all the difference. And when we come back, and we're reaching now the bottom of the hour, uh, I'm going to bring on uh, one of my first guests tonight, Georgia Lambert, and we're going to uh, talk about this just a little bit further because uh, this is, this is I mean, the mayor of Buffalo said flat out, it's a miracle. Now, you may define miracle differently. As uh, we say around here, your mileage may vary, but it definitely is not normal. Uh, if you can look at those stats from the American Heart Association, and I'm obviously intrigued with those things which are not, quote, normal. And that's what the show is about. We're trying to bring you the abnormal with some kind of a rational explanation to get to uh, uh, further down the road to trying to figure out what's going on. Item number three. Um, that was the, the major human, extraordinarily positive story of the week. The other story, of course, was the 15 times that uh, um, Congressman uh, Kevin McCarthy from Bakersfield, California, tried and failed to become Speaker of the House representing the GOP for the next two years. And then finally, last night, on try number 15, um, he made it by one vote. And the only reason he made it is because Matt Gates, who's another um, a congressman from Florida, who consistently been voting in a way that precluded um, uh, McCarthy from getting the required number of votes, changed his vote between vote number 14 and vote number 15. And there were all kinds of bizarre things that happened. And that's item number three. Uh, two lawmakers, one from, I believe, Alabama, named Rogers, literally came over and was within seconds of uh, actually uh, exchanging you know, some kind of body blows with McCarthy and was only held back, as you can see there by the image in item number three, by one of his uh, other congressional colleagues. Uh, tempers and emotions were running very, very high. And everybody says that, uh, well, it's because, you know, at the last second, McCarthy did some kind of a backroom on the floor deal with Gates and got him to change the vote. I'm not so sure. I'm wondering if this is not another example of what we might call, at least for the, the evening now, the DeMar effect. Was it all those people watching C-SPAN Live, watching McCarthy miss by one vote because of one guy that literally tuned in and said, good grief, man, be an adult, be a mensch, do the right thing, give the guy a damn chance. And suddenly he changed his mind. Now, why would I say that? Because Gates appeared on Fox just a few hours before and said basically that McCarthy had given him everything he could think to ask and he had nothing more to ask. So what could McCarthy have promised him that McCarthy had not already promised him? Is there an unknown factor? I think there just might be. So on that note, uh, we're at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, we have an extraordinary evening to present the beginning of the Enterprise extraterrestrial campaign 
by the offering of a unique painting of Alan Bean, astronaut Alan Bean, signed by 24 astronauts, historical astronauts. And we will explain what all that means and what these funds will do when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not touch that dial. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January 7th of 2023. Gosh, it seems like just a few days ago that I was intoning 2022, our time does fly. Um, I want to introduce my first guest because I want to talk a bit more about this Damar Hamlin situation. I do not think we should let this pass because it's an extraordinary moment where we should focus on the times in which we live. So I want to bring on Georgia Lambert. She is our resident metaphysician. She has a very lengthy bio. You can read it in the bio. Just click on under tonight's banner there on the guest page, the bios for Georgia. She worked with uh, Manly Hall for at least a decade. Uh, Georgia, am I, am I crazy or am I seeing something here that, uh, we should follow up. 
you're not crazy at all. Uh, a couple of very interesting points. Uh, back in the late 1960s and early 70s, uh, there were several institutions. The most prominent one was the Symington Clinic in Texas. Uh, they were the ones that sort of pioneered the work in visualization for cancer patients, teaching adults and children uh, how to visualize along with their uh, regular AMA medications. And they found that visualization really put them over the top as far as having good results uh, were concerned. And this led to other groups doing research, and they have found uh, on more than a few occasions that people that are prayed for um, when they're in life-threatening situations do better than those that do not. So, so the, the numbers, the statistics are there to support this idea. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it is. And I think it was funny you, you were talking about your own uh, particular uh, incident. Um, back in those days, I listened to Art Bell, as did a lot of my friends, and we were all part of that uh, good wishes sent your way. I could way back feel it. I can, in fact, it was so it was it, it got kind of funny because, as you know, I have had a few enemies over the years. You know, it was all I'm, I'm not on Twitter because you know don't worry about that. But you know, when you're a visible public person, you have supporters and people who you know don't support you. And uh, anyway, so I had a number of enemies out there, and they started sending around emails claiming that the entire event of me in the hospital, heart attack, and all that was just made up. It was all fake because, quote, I look too damn good in the photos that were posted on the internet of me in the hospital. And I thought, it, because I, no, I felt good because all these people were sending overwhelming something. And literally, exactly. I, I went from feeling really like a death's door to feeling absolutely, it's like, wait a minute, what am I doing in this bed? I got to get out and, you know, in other words, I felt so normal that they had to actually keep me from, you know, jumping out and going back to what I normally do. <laughs> the, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, is, is sort of a, a technical thing in terms of uh, esoteric anatomy. You know, there's a, a subtle energy body that underlies the physical nerves that the Hindus call the nadus system. These are like tiny lines of vitality that underlie the physical nerves and funnel into the physical nerves. And they have uh, sort of big vortice points. And the two main connections of this energy body with the physical body are called two threads. One, the life thread which is anchored in the heart at the sinoatrial node. That's the pulse point, the SA node. And the other one is a consciousness thread anchored in the head. But it's very interesting that um, in, in normal death processes, the withdrawal of this subtle nervous system happens in the extremities and eventually gets to the core of the body. But in cases like what we just saw with this athlete, um, the shock to the heart at the SA node, the, the physicians were talking about the pulse point, the SA node, the shock to that uh, jerked that life thread loose. 
and the uh, the heroic measures on the field uh, probably kept it intact enough until it could, which can happen because that thread does disconnect, for instance, in terms of heart transplants, and then it has to reconnect. But this essay note is really, really interesting. In medieval times, they believed that uh, there was it was a point of blue-white light, and that if you could open the chest and touch it, your finger would be burned. They oh thought it was that, that physical uh, a thing. But it is the electrical point that is the drumbeat for the heart. In Hindu mythology, you see the dancing Shiva on the drum. This is the life uh, in, the in, 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 in some reports of out-of-body experiences, and I, this appears, I wish we had John with us. Uh, he'll be on tomorrow night, so I'm going to ask him. And you'll be with us in the third hour tomorrow night, so you can back up asking him. Um, I, I've seen conflicting report. Well, maybe they're not conflicting. It's like there's two categories. You're talking about a different thread. You're talking about a I'm talking about that, that silver core that connects the yeah. out-of-body, right. whatever it is, with the body lying yeah, there on the bed. That's not, that's not the life thread. It's a different thread. Oh. Oh, what a sticky web we weave. When first we're trying to figure all this, so we, we're, we're connected by how many threads to what? Well, again, it would take a whole class on esoteric anatomy, but we are multi-layered beings. There are different layers of, of, of body or sheaths of matter. And what I'm talking about is the densest one that's closest to the physical called the vital body or the physical etheric. What you're talking about without a body experience is the astral body, which is more subtle, temporarily disengaging from the physical to go off and experience stuff and then be drawn back but in. But connected by cord, by, by a thread. Yes. Yeah, hmm. exactly. Except that's not all. The, all I've, I've seen it both ways. Either you are or you're not. You know, it's like, like, like a free-floating EVA without tubes connecting you to the spacecraft or, or lines or electrical or oxygen. And then the other reports are that there's this thread. And I, I've, I've never had a chance to ask John which one he participates in when he does his uh, scurrying around. So I will do that tomorrow night. Okay, um, I think I want to go back to where I was going to go before we got into this fascinating you know, side canyon. Um, because we don't, three hours is not a lot of time. It's amazing how time flies when you're having fun. So if you'll just stand by, let me let me kind of pick up the mm, pun intended thread of what we're talking <laughs> about here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to do that. Okay, item number four in my items. Um, we are going to be visited in the next few weeks by a comet. A comet which, according to the orbit, has not been within the inner solar system for something like 50,000 years. So everybody's talking about it as the, quote, Neanderthal comet. Uh, little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. So if you go to item number four, that's a space.com story. It turns out that the first week or so of February, it'll be within something like 28 million miles. It'll be visible in the northern hemisphere looking toward the constellation of Ursa Major, that's the one where the, the Big Dipper hangs out, uh, among other stars. And so if you're in a dark sky, there 
claiming that you might be able to see this with the naked eye. Obviously, I know exactly where I'm going to go. Uh, a pair of binoculars will easily show it, as it did on a previous comet that I went up to uh, look at at this particular place up the up the road from me. Uh, if you're not in a city, of course, if you're in a city, you can't see anything. But if if you're in the country, you can go see it. And there's going to be online telescopic live views. That's all contained in the lower part of that article on space.com. Now, the reason this is interesting is because of item number five. Remember, part of our research and part of the reason that we're using tonight to basically kick off a fundraising drive so we can get the word to as many mainstream media and people as necessary to, you know, create change is because we have now discovered that an awful lot of these objects in the solar system, which people, the mainstream still thinks are natural, are in fact not. They are ancient, ancient, derelict habitats and spacecraft of a extraordinary scale and size and mass, and they're damaged. So when they come near the sun and they warm up, formerly internal atmospheres, which uh, froze when they were, uh, you know, holed in space by something, we think it was the war, uh, they, they, they warm up and the, the ice is turned to gas and the gas becomes, uh, you know, material ejected from the body. And so a lot of the comets we see are not normal bergy bits or, or you know, uh, what do they call it, uh, rocky or dusty snowballs in the uh, Fred Whipple model, which was uh, created back uh, at the Smithsonian back in the 1950s. They are, in fact, ancient derelict spacecraft. And again, all you have to do is look at some of the NASA imagery, and if you can see your way clear to notice the symmetrical geometry, which is hiding under all the crud that they've been covered with from all this outgassing over, you know, countless hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years. Anyway, it just seemed to me kind of interesting that right now, as other things are poised to bring consciousness of this previous condition of the solar system to major public attention, there is appearing in the skies Another object, which if we could send a spacecraft really close, we would, again, be able to ascertain is not the product of natural solar system forces and creation, but it is a leftover from a long, long forgotten bygone era where something extraordinarily huge and tragic happened to our incredible advanced ancient, ancient ancestors. Which leads us to number five. There is a uh, new paper where people are now proposing in the mainstream that the first ET alien probes to reach us may be way more advanced than we expect. Really? Um, I mean, the idea that we would encounter an extraterrestrial civilization or its artifacts and it would be something on the order of Kmart, or as you'll read in that piece, you know, Voyager 1 or 2 or New Horizons or whatever. In other words, any 
of the current spacecraft we're creating. I mean, it's absolutely laughable. It's absurd. Because if you look at the calendars that various extraterrestrial uh, uh, investigators into SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, have been proposing all these years, you'll going back to Sagan, you'll notice that our level of cultural and technological advancement is so brief compared to the history of the galaxy or even the history of the solar system that the idea that we will contact anybody at roughly our level of technological and spiritual and cultural sophistication is kind of like almost zero. Anybody we're going to encounter, and certainly any of their technology, is going to be so far ahead of us, and that, again, assumes kind of linear thinking. You know, think of Arthur Clarke's third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, meaning it will do stuff that our folks cannot begin to understand because, of course, they don't have the right theoretical foundation. And in the mainstream, they are totally ignorant of the idea of a hyperdimensional physics, which makes a lot of things that are currently mysterious in this area and field and subject matter actually rationally explicable. Which, of course, brings us to the item and the centerpiece of tonight's show, which is item number six. Now, what I've done here is I have taken um, another bean painting and we've made it into a clickable link. So if you click on it, uh, it takes you directly to the Alan Bean uh, website, which is his gallery where all or most of his paintings currently reside. And there are subsidiary links on that site to the um, professional distributors who have the contract to you know, handle his paintings for people that uh, want to buy prints or lithos or whatever. Uh, what I did is I had Keith put up another composite I created, which is the composite on the left. And what this is, is a painting that uh, in the latter years Bean did of uh, Jim Irwin, who was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 15, landed at the so-called Hadley Rill in the northern hemisphere of the moon not too far from the uh, um, uh, huge 20,000-foot-high uh, mountains, the lunar Apennines that loop down in a curve on the uh, eastern side of uh, Mare Imbrium. And to the right is a close-up view from the recent Orion spacecraft as it was rounding the far side of the moon before the burn of the engine that would send it on a trajectory that several days later had it splashed down successfully in the Pacific Ocean south of San Diego. And the reason those two are companion is because look at the exquisite colors of that moon. And then look at the colors that Bean put into his, quote, imaginative, lyrical, almost, as he says in his written captions, uh, fantasy projections of a likable moon as opposed to the dead gray environs that he remembers seeing. Which, of course, brings us back to the 
central enigma of the whole Alan Bean artist, Alan Bean astronaut um, scenario or mystery or compounding mystery. Um, number seven, right below that, is another Bean painting of Gene Cernan this time, who was the uh, commander of Apollo 17, the last uh, Apollo mission to the moon. And on the right, there is a photograph taken by the chess cameras, the Hasselblads that both astronauts on the surface were wearing to take pictures. Um, and it's a absolutely regular uh, photographic image from, from the uh, environs of the Apollo 17 landing site on the rim of a place called Shorty Crater. And in the front center, you can see the brilliant orange soil that they got so excited about. But look at the rest of the, of the image. Look at the purplish violet rosette mountains. Look at the greenish terrain. Look at that rock in the bottom right foreground and the multiple colors. Again, Bean, if he was subjected to the same kind of brainwashing that I believe now that I document in uh, uh, Dark Mission, all the astronauts were subjected to, um, they did not remember the real moon that they walked on, they sampled, that they you know took photographs of. They looked at in their minds at something that was implanted, a script, a kind of um, uh, dissociative implanted hypnotic memory, a script, not their real experience at all. But the really interesting thing about Alan Bean compared to all the other astronauts is that Alan Bean, from long before he was selected as an astronaut, he also had this other side of his brain, of his consciousness, of his, of his um, uh, identity, well-developed, which was the right-brained artistic side, the connective side to seeing and feeling and sensing, um, not just in a linear, metonymic, very, quote, logical fashion. And I believe, again, I can't prove this yet, but I believe that over the years, as the distance between those, whatever the astronauts were subjected to in terms of you will not remember, whatever that treatment was, whatever that therapy was, whatever those imposed commands were, they began to break down. And in Bean's case, they're the reason why his paintings, beginning in the 1990s, had this incredible, remarkable shift between his engineering, logical, making models, making gray tones, painting, you know, putting dabs of moon dust from his spacesuit in the paintings, all of the very metonymic engineering expertise he brought to the physical creation of these things, and they became much more, in his mind, imaginative, metaphorical, spiritual, uplifting, and he just felt better. He couldn't, again, in the captions, unless he's really, you know, an incredible actor, and he knew exactly what he was doing, and he simply submerged it under the guise of, um, you know, being, quote, an artist and having artistic license to represent the moon any damn way that he wanted to. Well, at some point, these two curves, the rising, extraordinary, 
developing evidence from a variety of spacecraft that have been to or are now heading for the moon and taking new data decades, 50 years after the Apollo imagery that we've been looking at for all these decades. Those will all catch up with the cover-up which has been going on up to and including in the next year or two, maybe as late as 2025, there will be, you know, nine astronauts, civilians uh, in a Musk Starship spacecraft in orbit around the moon who are all looking at the moon, not with left brain eyes and engineering measurements, but with their artistic skills and their associative capabilities of connecting dots subconsciously that consciously most people do not even notice. Um, those people need to have a campaign directed at them before they leave on their singular life journey, courtesy of Musk and SpaceX going around the moon in the next few months. I mean, we're talking maybe 12 months, 24 months, and incredibly, if the Enterprise mission does, with your help, what we think we can do, which is to bring to these artists' attention Alan Bean's real, extraordinary, almost Sistine Chapel-like moon. And when they get there and they use their social media, including Trump's own Trump, Musk's own Twitter, which I think is why he bought Twitter, so he would have this avenue that no one can interrupt the way the game is played at that level. If he owns Twitter and these nine artists take the proper images and make the proper videos and show over their shoulders out those gorgeous windows in the starship what the real moon looks like right below them, if they put it on Musk's Twitter, will not be censored and it will alert the world to a stunning paradigm shift for everyone, all seven plus billion people currently living in extraordinary impoverishment compared to the lives we could be living if we avail ourselves of the science, the technology, the engineering, and the spiritual awareness of our own ancestors and what they left for all of us right on our own moon. Which brings us to number eight. Uh, Barbara Honiger, who has been a stalwart guest on this program and represents a wide variety of very specific and paradigm-shifting interests, ranging from the things we're going to talk about tonight to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, to having served in the Reagan White House and understanding, you know, what really goes on in Washington and much, much more. Remember, she got the first degree in parapsychology in the world a few years ago, uh, just kind of up the street from uh, Southern California. Um, if, if, if it hadn't been for her, we would not be having this conversation tonight because with her beneficence and her vision and her foresight, Barbara went out and purchased from the Bean Foundation a signed print of one of Bean's 
seminal paintings which was created to celebrate the opening of the uh, U.S. Astronaut um, Center, the Astronaut Memorial uh, there at the Cape Canaveral, which is, among other things, now housing the extraordinary technology preserved from the Apollo era, a bona fide refurbished Saturn V. It's now contained in a hall in a air-conditioned volume. It used to be just kind of sitting out on the lawn with pigeon droppings and rain and rust and all that. And then the powers that be did a fundraiser. They raised enough money to put it inside into a huge hall where American citizens, taxpayers, who helped create and fund without whom this would never have happened, the $20 billion uh, in 1969 dollars um, Apollo program, uh, one of those Saturns lying there on the lawn uh, was then contained in this memorial. And at the front, behind the podium, the, the uh, originators of the memorial selected Alan Bean's painting, Reaching for the Stars, to be emblematic of this whole idea that we are not constrained to one planet, that the destiny of the human race definitely belongs in space, and there is a huge iceberg of meaning underneath that simple phrase. And they chose this painting uh, to kick off the opening of the memorial. And because they were all there, Bean was able to get 24 of his compatriots, uh, the other Apollo astronauts, and the Gemini astronauts, and the Mercury astronauts, and the um, uh, shuttle astronauts to sign the painting. And so Barbara went and purchased a copy of the painting, and we are now offering it uh, as a fundraiser to the highest bidder, the highest donation for the painting that will help us fund the next level of the Enterprise Mission Campaign which is to bring to the world, but specifically to these nine artists that will be looping around in lunar orbit in Elon Musk's Starship spacecraft, the idea that there's really something extraordinary which will literally reach down and change the destiny of humans from here on. We're at the uh, top of the hour. You're on the other side of midnight. When we return... We'll bring on Barbara. Georgia is with us. She wears many hats. Georgia is a brilliant artist. And we'll also be joined by Ron Gerbron. Remember, Ron is a um, generalist. Well, part of his background has to do with gallery art in New York City. Stay tuned. We shall return. <laughs> The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show 
and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, second hour. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. My guests this morning, Barbara Honiger, Georgia Lambert, and Ren Gerbron. Barbara, please come on and tell us how you got this brilliant idea to buy this painting for, and I'm going to leave you totally to describe the details you want to mention or those you want not to mention at the moment. But tell us where you got the idea to do this, because it's so brilliant and so captivating, and it's going to make someone, whoever buys this painting, this lithograph, this signed piece of history, because of what's going to happen to Beam's reputation when the general culture realizes that the moon that he was fantasizing about is, in fact, the real E.T.-laden moon I mean, there is no estimate I can think of as to how much his works are going to appreciate simply because that's the way the art world. Right. Well, the simple answer to your question, Richard, is, as you know, I'm very guided. And seriously, um, it's kind of kind of frightening when you think about it, but uh, I do my best thinking when I'm unconscious. <laughs> That's not crazy at all. With a brilliant, a new brilliant idea. And uh, this was one of those new brilliant ideas. I literally woke up in the morning and, and said, ah, I have to go to the Alan Bean website and see what's available. And we can, we can have a fundraising campaign and raise the funds for everything that Richard's been wanting to do. And uh, so I went to the website. And um, I can't remember which website I went to. I think it was the official. Yeah, that's, that's the one that we have linked in item number six. Right. And I think it was at that website. I'm not sure of the exact sequence, but um, I learned that there were three dealers who are official licensed dealers. And I went to the websites of those three. And I liked um, the website, The Best of a Man by the Name of, not Alan Bean, but Alan Brown. And so I, you know, called the number and I talked to the gentleman and he said, you know, you really should get this one because it's, now this is very important for people to know. 
um, on the home page for tonight's show, um, just below your opening uh, text message, uh, where you can see the thumbnail sketch of the um, uh, of the print. It's a textured print. But what people need to know is that the signatures around the border of this print are actual signatures. They're not just images of signatures. It's not just a print of signatures. They're actual signatures. I'm assured of that. Um, not only of Alan Bean but also of uh, 23 or 24 other astronauts. And I'm just going to read you the names. Uh, in addition to Alan Bean, who was uh, not only a space artist, but also on the fourth man to walk on the moon, he was in Apollo 12. Also, Alan Shepard, whom, by the way, I met at the Naval Postgraduate School. Um, John Glenn, Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, James McDivitt, Walter Schirra. Richard Gordon, Walter Cunningham, he, Russell he just Stryker. died. Walter, Walter just died, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, Russell Schweiker, Buzz Aldrin. Um, Buzz Aldrin and I are on the advisory board of an amazing organization called Stanford University on the Moon. <laughs> huh. Um, and I just wanted to remind people when you gave a thumbnail sketch of my background. I also held the, held the NASA and space portfolio for the first almost year and a half of the first Reagan administration in the White House. Uh, Charles Conrad Jr., James Lovell, Fred Heath, Edgar Mitchell, I knew Edgar Mitchell, Alfred Warden. Um, in fact, uh, Edgar Mitchell co-founded with Russell Targ, the parapsychology research group at Stanford University in the whole Palo Alto, Silicon Valley area. Well, he created Russell, something in Northern California called the Noetics Foundation as well. Yeah, that's a separate organization. This, this was the parapsychology research group. Um, and Russell Targ was the first president, and I was the second president. Guess what? Guess what? Russell what? Targ is going to be my guest next Sunday night the 15th and oh, Russell cool. and and John uh, Womack who's arranged this and two other remote viewers uh named Williams and Schlitz and I don't remember their first name I think it's Lori Williams and Marilyn Schlitz and we're going to have three hours of a stunning deep dive into Russell Targ and what he has done with remote viewing out of Stanford over all these decades yeah not just Stanford but after SBSRI experiments were shut down, um, I believe in the early 1980s, um, he went on to continue the research and has published many books and, and has videos and documentaries on the subject. Um, maybe we should um, have Robert Morningstar try to channel Ingo Swan on that show. <laughs> well, we know that Thank Ingo you. dropped by. Thank you very much for the invitation. I would love to do it. Yeah, I think you should. I think it'd be great fun. Um, I think you might show up, seriously. Um, okay, so Charles Conrad, I, I mentioned Buzz Aldrin, of course, uh, Apollo 11. Charles Conrad Jr., uh, James Lovell, Fred Hayes. Okay, we got up to Edgar Mitchell, whom I knew, uh, Alfred Warden, Charles Duke Jr., Thomas Stafford, Gerald Carr, Edward Gibson, William Pogue, Owen Garriott, Jack Luzna and Paul White. So those are the actual signatures around the border of this amazing print. 
Um, so the bottom line answer to your question is uh, I woke up one morning and said I have to do this. And I did it. And by the way, the painting is sitting right here in my living room as I'm talking. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to see it. I mean, see, now, all right, this is where we need to bring Ron in. Ron, Ron, as I said, is our resident generalist. As luck would have it, tonight we have something that only Ron, I know nothing about this, and Barbara, I don't think you've dabbled too much in this world, but Ron's, this this is his wheelhouse because for X number of years, Ron actually worked in high-end galleries in New York, selling paintings like this to millionaires and others that want to accumulate one-of-a-kind unique things. And believe me, this being painting, if we do our stuff, is going to become one of the most unique works of art on the planet. Ron? Yes, and, and I actually think that you should sign it on the back, Richard. Mm, okay, we can we can talk about that. Um, as this work matriculates into the mainstream, and as must nine artists, you know, get ready to take this mission, I I really want to focus our campaign on them because being civilians, being people who are not under any NDAs, which are non-disclosure agreements having no deals with the military, the Pentagon, the CIA, the deep state, whatever, they will be free technically, legally to tell us whatever they see and photograph. And I really am thinking more and more that this is why Musk bought Twitter because Musk is a genius. He's a multidisciplinary generalist like Ron. And I believe he understands that if he legally under the rules of commerce owns an outlet that literally is part of the infrastructure of the mainstream the censoring of the data from these artists when that comes back through twitter will be very difficult if not impossible and so he's thinking ahead because he already knows what's out there how do i know that because he and joe rogan spent a significant part of one Joe Rogan show talking about yours truly and they even had the cover of one of my books available to put on the screen so they could you know say terrible things about me like I couldn't rewrite yeah ha ha wink wink it's all part of the bigger long range plan at least well, I they're think also so. covering their you know what it's kind of like uh, you know doing doing short sales or put options or whatever they are, you know, to <laughs> cover yourself. Um, I would like to mention to people that starting tonight, Cynthia has put up the donate button for this campaign. And uh, it's on the homepage. It's also uh, not too far under Richard's um, text description of tonight's show. If you um, scroll down, there's the donate button on the show page for tonight. and um, uh, what what we have here is it says donate here. There's a donate button, and it says donate here. By the way, this is a dedicated donate button, and it's going to be up on the homepage in perpetuity here until we meet the Enterprise Mission fundraising campaign goal of $100,000. Now, I do want to say that obviously this particular the, – the purpose of this campaign is – not for somebody to give $100,000 for this particular painting. 
um, even though we would love to have a hundred thousand dollars and give it away instantly. The purpose. Of well, maybe the Musk will hear this because I'm going to talk about how we get to Elon Musk with all this later in the show, and Musk, right. of course, could write this out of out of uh, good grief his 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 pocket change. The, the purpose of the campaign, of course, is for as many people as possible to donate whatever you can donate generously to the new campaign. So let me read what it says. Donate here on this donate button, which is now dedicated. These are tax-deductible donations thanks to Kinthea, and maybe she wants to talk about that. Kinthea has a 501c3 that Richard is part of. Um, so donate here to the Enterprise Mission Goal. And Richard set this goal today of $100,000 for the chance to own Apollo 12 astronaut artist Alan Bean's Reaching for the Stars, signed by Bean and 23 other astronauts. Once the goal has been reached, whoever has given the largest donation towards the goal, along with having given his or her name and email, and there's a place when you click on the donate button to give your name and your, your contact information, will receive this signed uh, bean print through the mail, postage paid. Donations to the campaign through this button, the dedicated button, are tax deductible. And then Richard has added, know that you will be helping to bring about radical change in the landscape of who we consider our species to be in relation to the rest of our expansive universe of intelligent beings. And I would just like to add, I wanted to say this at the outset, that after the complete and total debacle in the House of Representatives the past five days, <laughs> I think rather than just a search for extraterrestrial intelligence, we should start a new organization called Search for Terrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm telling you, we are in for an extraordinary two years by every mainstream projection. And I will also tell you that my intuitive feeling, Georgia helped me on this, is that all of the linear projections of what's going to happen with the Republican control house in the next two years are absolutely flat out wrong. Okay. I'm sorry. I had the mute button on, uh, put me in coach. Each of you has just made an egregious error. Oh, okay. Correct. Right now. Uh, well, I'll start. I'll start with Barbara. Sorry, Barbara. Here, uh, the uh, nobody should ever mention putting your name on the back or something like that. If you knew what trouble all art publishers go to to keep anything extraneous off of those, it really okay, affects. Okay, I withdraw the suggestion. Why do you yeah, think, no, Ron? Right, I didn't leap up one. and down and say yes, 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 because I intuitively felt that was not the thing to do. So. Well, okay, now for your egregious error, which, which offends, offends, offends me horribly. Uh, no, I never worked in the art business in New York City. Uh, there's a great rivalry between New York and L.A. I know one gallery that I worked in, uh, one... Wait, 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 you mean I got the wrong coast? Yeah, you did. You had so these, what? Uh, God, free. good grief. Because in the, in the art business, it makes a difference. We're... Uh, I'm not in the art business. You are, or you were. So yes, I yes I okay. was. Okay, so I, everything I, I said is right I, except it's L.A. and not New York. Right, but that's oh my not, yeah. Oh my god. Well, gosh. let's yeah well, yeah yeah. You made it sound so glowing. I know they've got Soho, but the gallery I was in beat the Soho Gallery in a corporate competition very handily one uh, one year, 
and they were very upset. So yeah, we know we knew what we were doing. <laughs> but I used to work for Robert Bain, his name Bain, like the the Batman villain. Okay. He big as he was as big as that, but a much nicer dude. Drove a uh, drove an Aston Martin, uh, which he let me drive once in a while, and was colorblind. Okay. And he was an art dealer. Yeah, he had to have his wife pick his uh, suits out and coordinate the ties for him every day, um, just to make sure. It was the um, uh, the milder form, you know. The um, I don't know if it's uh, if it's obnoxious to call it an ethnic division, but uh, the Jewish strain of colorblindness. It, it is, you know, genetically linked, and so everything looks kind of brown. You can't tell the difference between them. It's not. Yeah, but being an art dealer and being colorblind, I mean, how the heck did he ever get in into that business? Yeah, it's very strange. Well, he just. I know, but uh, was it was it a family business? Did he inherit it from his father, his grandfather? Oh no, oh no, he used to work for one of the other dragons. That's what they. So he 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 was he was a functioning, um, high end art illiterate because he couldn't see them. But he followed my grandmother's precept, which is, if you don't know your furs, know your furrier. So he no, hired, no, he was, so he hired yeah. you as a furrier. Oh, I'd like yeah, to step in. Well, no. And this is Kinthea. Hi, and I want to add that I have a really dear friend of mine, artist friend of mine I've known for 20 plus years. Wonderful artist who is very colorblind. Yeah. So, you know, being artistic doesn't mean you're limited because you don't see color. You just see the world differently than others do. I was going to offer a similar defense, Kenzie. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Yeah, Take so the that was, that was, you, that was not you, a... Do, do yes. you mean that people who are colorblind, quote, colorblind, unquote, see different colors than other people or no, no. colors? Well, if if everybody... Uh, give me a second here. It's No, no, no. It's It's just an ocular thing the red and green are uh less you would think that they couldn't be more uh distinct from one another but to someone with that form of color blindness no they're both just kind of muddy so it's hard to tell the difference between them and it, it you know it varies by degrees I mean, well richard no i have a theory i have a theory richard yeah maybe NASA secretly chose colorblind astronauts to go to the moon and that's no, I, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, Barbara, Barbara, just to I, give you a sense of how they look, imagine you're looking at a photo and it's a sepia print. Like some yeah. of the colors are muted. Yeah. Very so good. you're not seeing it the way others see it, but you are seeing all the artistry of it other than that subtle shift in colors. Mm-hmm. I understand. I, I understand. think we've gotten a bit yeah. diverted because what I wanted Ron to talk about is the art market and appraisals and why this particular print, when what we're going to make happen happens, is going to go through the roof, as will all Beans works. Well, since we finally got on topic, yeah, I, I'd like to fill that in. I can tell you something. Uh, the, uh, the fact that, and Barbara, you did answer the most important question, which is about all the, the other 23 signatures. If it was yeah. hand-signed by all those people, that has an incredible effect on its keepsake value. For instance, I have one print that I uh, <clears throat> picked up at work um, legally um, that has every 
famous cartoon, uh, national cartoonist, uh, they did one of their little caricatures all on the same sheet. It took years to put the oh thing together. And plus they had, uh, you know, this goes way back. I mean, the, uh, uh, you know, Bob Kane, you know, that, uh, invented Batman, you know, and just, just everybody imaginable, uh, going back, uh, to the thirties. Uh, and it took years to get the, get all those, draw their little signature figure on the, uh, on the same, um, piece, uh, the same sheet of paper, which they did. The thing's rather large. It's like, you know, many feet by many feet. Uh, I'm only missing, then you had to get them all signed because they initialed them all, you know, or even signed them as part of the, of the thing. But then the, then the thing circulated around to be hand signed by every single one of the artists after the print was made, which is what we're looking at here and with this thing. And, uh, I'm only missing one signature and, uh, uh, Bob Bain, my boss, said that he uh, he didn't know he didn't know of, uh, more than two or three others that had that many of the signatures on there. Wow! So the thing is, so compared to the and there's I, I forget how many now. It's been it's been stored in a sealed tube for years. Uh, I, I I mean it's only about ten feet away from me, but you know I'm not gonna unseal it to look. Uh, there's there's over a hundred artists. Good there. grief! So, so it was a major, you know, it was a major operation for that thing to be done and for, to actually safely circulate it around to all of them after the prints were made uh, and get them signed. There's only a handful. I that don't have think more. that's what was done, Ron. I think that they all were invited to the opening of the memorial, and they were all in one place. And Alan just said, "Look, sign, sign, sign." Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. For this one, that's that's what happened. You know, it's, it's one could check and see if they were all actually alive in 1997, but I'm quite sure they were, which is when the print was done. The I believe my understanding, I read someplace, I don't think it, I don't think you said so on the show, Richard, but recently someone said that they understood that this reaching for the stars um, image of Alan Bean is actually a large mural. I thought it was NASA headquarters, but maybe it's at that other. No, no, no. It's at the astronaut memorial. And I think he did it specifically for this building because, because of the enshrinement of one of the few three Saturn fives left on earth that did not go to the moon. Right. And, and many artists have a favorite painting that they have actually done several times. And Mm -hmm. in the case of this one, I doubt that he got on a scaffold and did the mural. You know, it was probably done from his his artwork, which is perfectly legitimate. You know, artists hire other people to do some of the grunt work. Uh, well, the, unlike uh, unlike Bob McCall, who did the physical uh, paintings in the Smithsonian, that Ken Johnston and I and uh, uh, what, what's her name uh, uh, Jones uh, did stand ups in, in front of many years ago at the Smithsonian when I took Robin to NASA headquarters. So, uh, uh, no, sure. there are artists there are- that do these things. In, in, in total, uh, this one, I think, uh, is a smaller reproduction that's behind the podium there in the uh, in the uh, memorial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as, as far as I could find out this afternoon, yeah, it's an actual it's an actual paint. This one that, that we're. Um, yeah, Laura London actually was at the Cape one. and she yeah. photographed the original. And I forgot to put up that that uh, image 
and I will do that um, if not during the show. So when we when we run the show again, and we're definitely going to have to run the show again, uh, Laura's in situ uh, memorialization of what this thing looks like in its. Oh, that'd be wonderful! I, in, I really want to see in, that in its habitat. You know, she did. A, yeah. She took a great photo, and I just you know there was too much to do, and the usual technical idiocy and all that. So I will do that um, if not during the show after the show. Well, you know, Laura London uh, introduced us to begin with, Richard. Oh, that's right. Yes. That's right. I'd forgotten that. Anyway, so let's go back to how this painting, this, and the technical term is this is a print, right? A signed print. I want to get the terminology done. Okay. Barbara, can I, can I, can I ask you something? Is it, is it a bit shiny? Well, it's, I'm about to read you what it says. What, what comes no, I want to know what you think when you look at it. You said it's in the room there. Is it a little bit shiny, the surface of the painting? It's, oh, it's, kind, of like, it's kind of like the one um, that he did of um, Eugene Cernan. No, no, I'm not talking about intensity of color or anything else. Just is it, is it not just flat, matte? Is it shiny? That's all. Uh, what, well, shiny is a bit subjective. I wouldn't say it shines. Um, well, no, 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 I, yeah, don't exact, yeah, it doesn't, I don't mean let, let, me, let me answer my way if, you, if I could. It's a textured, well, it's a textured canvas. Canvas. And like his other, it's called a textured canvas that's on his own website, uh, the <laughs> official website. It's 34 inches by 27 inches, which is good size. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And it's um, like like his other canvases. He has added a lot of texture before I understand. I believe before he starts painting, but he actually uses moon boots, not the one he had on the moon. I guess he had to give those up. But he uses a moon boot. I think they were left on the moon because of the weight. Yeah. Mm. But when We're still running back, off the path here. I just want to know if it's flat or if it's the surface, the physical surface of the print is a little bit. I'm just trying to determine Bob's how it was made. talking about the paper. He's talking about the gloss on the paper. That's what Yeah, well, because would, that would I tell would, me, is it a clay or? I would say some, it's between the two. So it's, it's not, not shiny. Some, it's not completely flat. Okay, fine. So fine. it's got three-dimensional well, relief. I'm try- I was just trying to determine because it does not specify in the in your item, Georgia, for the benefit of potential uh, purchasers. And I think everybody that can afford it should chase after this because, as I said about the cartoon uh, cartoonist collection, ones that are multiply signed like that, even if astronauts who and I'm sure they didn't all gather once in one room. They probably had to travel them around a little bit. No, know, I think they were there. Well, even so, it's still it's an amazing event to have them all at one place at a time. But the uh, I was just trying to determine what how it was printed, and the uh, the. Well, no, I don't. Way, I don't know. I'm going to I'm going to find well, out I'd more say, about it. Well, based on the other prints of his that I was looking at this afternoon, it's probably a clay. This is a good thing. This is a good. But thing. it doesn't have, say that. It may be the case. Yeah. Um, yeah. What I do know is that the original was textured like he does and he used a moon boot a new moon boot mm-hmm. like the one he wore on the moon to add moon boot stamps into the texture now you yeah. said something here that might mislead uh, our listeners a bit 
And that is, okay. you said anyone who, let me finish. You said anyone who could afford it. That's not what this, um, that's not what this fundraising drive is about. The no, goal, the, let me finish, please. I'll let you know what I'm doing. Actually, we're at the bottom of the hour, so nobody can well, finish until we come back. Good okay. idea. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. You're listening to a vibrant discussion about this incredibly unique bean painting signed by 24 real astronauts who've been to the moon, who were in Earth orbit, who pioneered in Mercury, who flew the shuttle, who were in the space station, who piloted the lunar module. Um, Most of them, I don't know whether that's technically true, a lot of them are no longer with us. So something like this can never be done again. But they signed the actual three-dimensional print, which is on canvas. And when it's mounted in a frame, which it will be, it will be stunning. And because of what's going to happen to Bean's art appreciation perspective on a world stage, when the general world community understands that what he was painting was, in fact, the real moon, the price of this is going to, sorry guys, go into orbit. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, January 7th, Tetrahedral 7. Why Tetrahedral? Because there are seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron, which is the foundation mathematically of the entire hyperdimensional model. Some of you may have noticed that we are playing as a break music tonight. Segments from the extraordinary Pink Floyd album, Oh, so appropriate, the dark side of the moon. And if you look at the cover, did you ever wonder how Pink Floyd got a prism with the refraction of the spectrum through a prism to metaphorically represent 
the dark side of the moon. And now we know that all that glass, if you look at that number six, the comparison of, uh, of uh, uh, Jim Irwin standing on the real moon painted by uh, Alan Bean, and next to it, the Artemis Orion image of the, quote, dark side, technically the far side, every spot on the moon except for the poles sees the sun every two weeks, rising and setting. There is no dark side. But they chose, Pink Floyd chose a prism, a refractive rainbow to depict their far side emblem and album. And how did they know? Anyway, back to my guest of the morning. Georgia, you have been very, very silent. Now, Georgia, you may not know this, but Georgia is an incredible fine artist, completely separate. Actually, it's not completely separate because it's part of her higher level consciousness, but uh, it's certainly not metaphysics. It's, it's physical. It's incredibly symbolic. We've got one of, one of her paintings, actually. Uh, let me uh, uh, click on her items. Uh, number one, um, talk about art, Georgia, and what you think of this whole project, and from your separate perspective, what you think could happen to this uh, signed um, uh, lithograph from Alan Bean. I'd be happy to, but I think Barbara had something she wanted to finish. Oh, Barbara? Yes, yes I've been trying to say so, Richard. Maybe you can't hear me. No, 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 I have to mute. Otherwise, it all goes out over the air. So oh, I, I cannot okay. hear what you guys are doing. You're talking among yourselves, but thank goodness you can have the conversation. I just can't eavesdrop during the breaks. Okay, but you, you can know, hear me now. Right? I can, yeah, yes. Okay, okay, good. How many um, fingers yeah, am I holding wanted, up? I just wanted to make a <sighs> correction to something that uh, Ron mentioned. I think it was Ron before the break. And that is he said for anybody about this uh, enterprise mission um, fundraising campaign, anybody who could afford it was what he said. That That is a misunderstanding of this campaign. I'm just going to repeat what it is. So when we are encouraging everyone to donate generously. That's the whole point, because you should, because this is so important. However, Richard has set the goal, the ultimate goal of the campaign at $100,000. He could change that. He could. He's not going to increase it, but he might reduce <laughs> it. We'll see. But anyway. Well, I, well, hang on. As long as you open the door, let me tell you why. Because uh-huh. one of the parts of the campaign that will have the biggest bang for the buck is to take out a full-page ad either in the Washington Post or the New York Times and lay out the story in a full-page ad with color imagery in the Post or the Times. The technology in newspapers now is you can reproduce color. And so we can lay the whole story out about what the moon really is, what being forecast it was going to be, what the Koreans and the Chinese and the other nations going to the moon have shown us from their separate imagery is exactly the same extraordinary, colorful, prismatic moon that the Apollo astronauts saw and had their minds wiped so that only being through the subconscious, through his artistic bent, somehow he remembered at a gestalt level 
the real moon, when all of that comes out, this painting is going to appreciate an extraordinary value. Well, to get to that point, we have to let people know what's at stake and the quickest way to let policy makers, the House, the Senate, the, the judiciary, and the White House. Remember, President Joseph Biden tonight has a piece of a lunar artifact in a glass case from NASA sitting in the Oval Office right next to the Resolute Desk. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before, and he asked for it, so he probably knows what's really there. And he's the administration that will be in charge when we go back to the moon with men and women and musk flies and the Artemis crew does the same thing in a couple of years. So that requires that we use... Hang on, hang on, hang on. That requires that we... Wait a minute, I'm... That requires... That requires... An injured party, I want to get a word in. Hang on a second, guys, please. I will. I will wait. You me originally. Now I'm just correcting you. That's all. Okay. So I just want people to know. No, that's not okay. You See? you insulted me. I was only referencing the fact that it is a, something of great value, which will continue to become of greater value. And okay, that's what I thought. That, I thought that was fair. I need. Why? You're saying the same thing over again. Go ahead. I'm you sorry. I'm getting mad. Either of you yet? Just be. Please let me say it. If, I'll let you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. The bottom line is that the goal is Richard has set it at a hundred thousand dollars. We our, want people. Our, we please, Ron. We want people to donate because because it's the right thing to do. But for instance, if if over time the largest donation by the time we reach whatever goal Richard ultimately sets. If the highest donation time that that goal is finally reached is $500, that person gets gets it. If the highest donation is $2,000, that person gets it. So the way we've structured it is to encourage people to give generously. So that's number one. Number two, Richard, um, this may surprise you, but it will probably take the entire $100,000 goal for a colorful page ad in the Washington Post. So I know this for a fact. So all it takes is one. Believe well, me, yes. everybody who's worth anything in terms of policy and determining how the nation and the world proceeds reads one of those two papers. Or we might look at the Wall Street Journal as well. Well, the New York Times and the Washington Post, I've, I've looked into a full-page ad for our 9-11 group, and um, the black, full black and white ad for a full-page on a weekend, which is what you want, um, on a Sunday paper that has by far the greatest readership and, and reach, was uh, $85,000, and that was five years ago. Yeah, back when I started looking, it was twenty twenty grand. Oh, But, well, but, but let's, let's say it is 100000 we live on a planet of 7 billion people. Elon Musk alone has enough money to fritter Twitter for 44 billion. There are people out there who can afford it. If they want a piece of history, which is unique in modern, you know, global epic events, picking this thing up, writing a check for 100 grand so we can do the minimum for this campaign would be trivial. And that's why I right. wanted to have Ron on to talk about the crazy world of art where things are appraised not 
not on terms of their, quote, real value, but on other levels that are so arcane and so divorced from reality that I'm, I mean, the idea that we're going to try to just raise 100,000, weren't you telling me, Ron, that one of Bean's paintings now go, is going for 67,000? Yes. One I looked at this afternoon on the web, which I, I'm jealous as hell, it's an extraordinary painting. Uh, it said sold. You know what the selling price was? $67,000. Now, that was an that, original. That's, yes, that's an original. But I, uh, that doesn't matter. For, and as far as putting ads in newspapers, uh, I think we can get advertising for nothing. It's basic, this is basically a fundraiser, and I don't think that a radio show uh, necessarily does its advertising in, a news, in, a, in the New York Times or anything else like that. That's not necessary. We can find somebody. I'll bet you Ryan Reynolds would run a free ad for us on his mobile website if we asked him. You know, I'm just pulling a name out of the hat. Well, the reason I'm picking the Times of the Post, and Ron, of course, hates this, I want someplace that is politically connected where all the policy people who think going to the moon was nonsense and insane and crazy and a waste of money, and Artemis is doubly so, suddenly get the idea, oh, my God, there could be something so extraordinary for civilization that the United States should get there first before the Chinese set up customs. What about all those websites that are a bit more neutral than that, that cover science and space and where we get... I don't want science and space. I want ordinary people who will read the Times and the Post because they're into the politics of the in-crowd deep state mainstream Washington circus. Well, yeah, I mean, doing one does not preclude the other. I'm just saying that if we were to do this, among other things, it would be of such a newsworthy value that we would get what's called uh, uh, free media over a much larger area than merely those want that one ad. But the one ad would do it because it's where everybody goes and they'll go, holy crap, and the next phone call they make is to the Bean Gallery. Those people that have the painting will freak out already. The guy who bought the one for sixty-seven grand because his painting will appreciate enormously. In other words, you need to talk about, Ron, how crazy the art world can become when something becomes a fad. And I'm thinking kind of like the tulip mm. craze in the 1600s. That's a good analogy. Yeah, that was amazing. And it, it fits something, a discussion I was having with Kim this afternoon. Uh, I told her what, and this is from selling art, whether it be originals or um, mass-produced posters or prints, declay, serograph, lithograph, whatever. Uh, you do not sell the uh, painting. You sell the story. Yeah. And there's a and there's a story. Oh, there's here. a I'm calling. There's a unique and, story. This is yes, a guy who and, somehow intuited, having been there, having been brainwashed by the CIA or whatever, he somehow put down on canvas hundreds and hundreds of times what's really there, and it opens up such a doorway to a future we cannot imagine tonight. It will, it'll be, it'll be literally the price will go into orbit 
And so you're getting in cheap on the ground floor if you get this painting for like two grand or five grand or even 10 grand. You're going to make a hundred times that without even turning around once this becomes mainstream. And we're within months of this all becoming mainstream, which is the rest of my items in Radio with Pictures tonight, which we will get to before the end of the show. Open question. Uh, usually the kind of question I should have found an answer ahead of time, so I wasn't saying something bad, but uh, <laughs> have any of you people talked to anyone in the Bean family? Well, many years ago, one of my very close friends who happened to be in the NASA family, when I held the press conference of the National Press Club with a whole bunch of very esteemed people and laid this out and actually got on the front page of the Washington Post right below President Clinton with our press conference on what's on the moon, one of these guys in NASA went to Bean when he was very much alive. This was in the early 90s. And he said, is Hoagland crazy? And Alan Bean looked at him straight and said, no, Hoagland's not crazy. Now, would he say that in public? Of course not. Because back in these dark ages, terrible things could have happened to him, his family, whatever. Why do you think he's been doing it until he died as art? Because it mm-hmm. was plausible, deniable. He could make any moon sure. he wanted. And it was just, quote, art. Except it's not art. It's real. Right. By, the way, by the way, Richard and Ron, there is a an original, being original, that is right now, they're asking almost a half million dollars. Oh, my God. Somebody knows. Yeah. Somebody yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah. Besides we are us. probably we are probably affecting those numbers just by talking about <laughs> our radio. It's uh, yeah, it's no. I well, you know why I was saying that. I don't want Buzz Aldrin to drive over to your house and punch either of you in the face. You know, this is um, well because you, you, you know why he did that with uh, uh, Seabird. Yeah, because he? he said you know. Yeah, oh yeah, he said uh, Siebel or Bart Seibel, Bart, Bart Bart Seibel. Bart Seibel. That's his name. Yeah, he said, yeah, because he's, uh, uh, he was trying to, Saul was trying to tell him that none of them went, actually went to the moon, which um, was a. Well, he approached him uh, on a Hollywood street with a Bible and said, would you put your hand on the Bible and swear you went to the moon? And, and uh, uh, Aldrin decked him. And, oh, yeah, the, I remember. and the reason he did is because yeah. it brought up all those doubts within Buzz himself because their minds were messed with i have evidence behind the scenes and that's why when you read the captions on beans on website and he shows you his monet moon or he shows you the other one and he talks about how it was so weird that the moon looked like a gray cutout two-dimensional um and 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 you know he thinks he's describing or maybe he doesn't we don't know what he saw out the window of the command module when in fact what he's describing is a screen memory. Ron and I discussed this extensively, and Ron brought this up, that was planted in all the astronauts, so they think they were remembering, and in fact they were given a supplanted false memory. And again, with Bean, it came through the other doorway, and that's why at the same time, I mean, is it a coincidence that we hold our press conference and suddenly Bean's paintings blossom with all these stunning prismatic colors of the moon, right coincidence with us laying out for the National Press Corps 
at the press club, The Real Moon. Are you saying that he didn't paint a colored moon until right after your press conference? Yes. There's a transition. You can look at the historical record, the, the book he wrote and all this, and he has this wonderful explanation of doing one painting of him standing in his spacesuit on the moon. And he talks about how he put it away for years, and then an inspiration yeah. overtook him, and then he painted it, and it felt much mm-hmm. better. Everything he has written is in code. It's in Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant code. What was it's the known as a memory trigger. It's, it's a memory trigger. Can, uh, I, can I speak to that for a minute? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, it's really, really interesting, uh, this change in color that he did. Um, the two sides of the brain are connected by a major bridge called the corpus callosum. And what they discovered uh, with studies into epileptics, where um, in one side of the brain you would have an electrical event, and because of the uh, corpus callosum, it would be... it would move to the to the other hemisphere. So one of the things they used to do is they used to do a, a surgery where they would cut the corpus callosum so that when the epilepsy started in one hemisphere of the brain, it couldn't transit to the next. Uh, but what they found under scrupulous testing was that the brain found a way for the two sides to talk to one another outside of the corpus callosum. Oh. So if there was some kind of targeted technology to cut that bridge or affect that bridge. There was. You know how I know? Because I was invited to this conference. Sorry to interrupt, but this is important data. I was invited to this conference in Wyoming, sponsored by a whole bunch of CIA people, who freaked out when I showed my first moon data publicly. And the guy who would sponsor the conference, who had no idea I was going to talk about the moon and not Mars, took me into a room and physically, bodily threatened me. His wife was a doctor who was part of the astronaut 21-day quarantine in Houston, and she orbited around the conference, and she never would even meet with me when I was a guest in this guy's house. So I know she was part of a cadre of medical people that basically hypnotized the astronauts, fed them their script so they remembered a black and white moon. And it was only Bean who somehow bypassed the circuitry so he could paint what's really there. Well, that's what I'm talking about. It's not a lobotomy. That deals with the frontal lobes. This is specifically a cutting of the corpus callosum. But they found that there were other minor bridges that are not normally used where having the corpus callosum cut in these epileptic uh, uh, patients, uh, the hemispheres found a way to integrate and to talk to one another. So in looking at Bean's paintings, and I'm looking at number six and number seven in Richard's show notes. What strikes me is that if you look at the colors in the painting next to the photograph of the moon. That's number seven. uh, Six and seven, both. Yeah, well, Uh, six is from orbit, 
and seven is the same photo taken a few feet away from where Cernan is, a real physical photo, that's the right panel. Right. What I'm noticing is that not only are the colors exact, but the degree of chroma is exact, meaning how much color is uh, pure pigment is in something mixed with white or black to gray it down. You can't do that. He could not get that level of exactness except for one of two ways. Number one, having the photograph in color there for him to mix and match, or uh, something coming up from the subconscious that is accurate. Wonderful. Wonderful. Richard? Yeah. Yeah, I'd just like to add, um, you know, it, it, will, it remains to be seen um, what the goal, once it's reached, the $100,000 will be used for. I know that you want to, to target it to the eight or nine or so artists and other creative people who are going to be actually going to the moon. Um, I would like people to know that, and I mentioned this, I think, in a phone call with you, that um, I was fascinated to find out, I did a little bit of research, about what things cost. Um, and I found out that you can, uh, if you have the right scientist to apply uh, and the uh, application is accepted, it only costs $17,000 for a whole hour, and you get the web telescope to look at whatever you want. Okay, well, we can't look at the moon with the Webb telescope because they would have to look back toward the sun and it would burn out the telescope. So that's not... No, but maybe no. Mars. Well, that's a whole other thing. I mean, yes, there's a whole bunch of research things. But see, we already done this research. What I'm looking for is the high-value catalytic target where one thing explodes this into national and international consciousness. For instance, if we bought... For 100 grand, let's assume round numbers, an ad in the Times or the Post, ideally you'd do both, which means we need 200 grand. Um, you then take that ad and you give a copy to every one of these artists who are going to orbit the moon. And they will see it in one of these two papers and they'll go, oh my God, this is serious. This is real. Because we judge things now by their frame where we see them, not the content of what we're seeing. And everybody is amenable to that kind of public peer pressure. To say the least, if it appears in those two papers, all of the people who fund NASA will suddenly get very serious about, has NASA been telling us the truth? Because without those congressional people well, who want to now investigate the deep state, according to McCarthy and Gates and uh, uh, Green and others, they would look at looking into NASA's archives to see whether they've been telling the truth with unfettered glee. In other words, we could trigger such a, a radical surgery into what the deep state has really been hiding that, you know, the, 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 the leverage for a mere hundred grand is almost priceless and that's where i want to focus like a laser how do we catalyze real change and appreciation of what has been withheld from us 
and what is now attested to by a first-hand witness. In any court case, when you have a pile of evidence and an eyewitness, the jury will go with the eyewitness. It's just a human thing. We got an eyewitness. His name is astronaut Alan Bean, and he happens to be a hell of a good artist. And he finally painted what's really there, and you simply compare it to multinational images. And that's how they confirm that he was telling, at whatever level, the real bona fide. You know, it occurred to me, uh, Kinsia is a brilliant artist, and this this, um, print uh, has uh, the border around it, as you can see by just going to the homepage. The border around it that has the... um, the astronaut signatures and Alan Bean signature. Um, Kinthea, or anyone, but Kinthea could do it brilliantly, could just take an image of, of this uh, reaching for the stars and in the margin, in the wide margin around, instead of, or, or add margin beyond the signatures, um, you, could, you could actually have a border of all of these images. You mean Bean's uh, actual paintings of what's really there? No, no, I mean the opposite. I mean, take, take one of the best paintings, not this, not this reaching for the stars. Take, take an image of, of uh, for instance, your number seven, I think, the one with... Uh, oh, you mean, you mean the examples of the comparisons? Yeah, and put around the border the uh, images... Like a frame within back. a frame yeah. within a frame. Yes. Or like a, I, actually, actually, it's more like a mat within yeah. a mat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hang on, Ron. Is that going to depreciate or appreciate the value? Uh, it's going to tank it. But you could have a companion piece that had whatever you want. Why would it tank I it? Mean, if you're not touching the original, it's within the center. And then around it, you make a border. And then around that, the frame. Why would it tank the value of the original that you're not touching? It'd be part of the frame, basically. I'll go back. Well, I I am in favor of it having a mat. That was the question I didn't get to ask Barbara. Is if there's is uh, is it matted or is it full in the frame? No, we're going to do all that. That's that's no, no, no. Hold hold on. I have not. I have not said I would frame this painting, and I'm not going to. Okay, Um, okay. That's all I needed to know. It's unframed at this point in time. Yes. Yeah, but uh, it's it's curved, you know, around the edges. You don't mess with originals. It's it's the same reason antiques lose their value if the patina is gone. You you don't mess with. I'm not talking about messing with the original. We're talking about how it would be mounted so there's context, so people can see. I want a a companion piece is a good idea. To do anything with this painting, with the signatures, nothing at all with that. I'm just suggesting a new, uh, a new uh, piece that Kinthea could do, taking what you and Kinthea and the rest of us you think. Know, guys, if be- we're not careful, we're blowing past the top of the break. Chris is going to have okay. a problem editing this, so Any- let us pause. My computer is not working. Ah, come on, guys. There we are. There we are. There we are. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that. No. Much better. Much better. Okay. little editing there, Chris. This is live radio. See, we're doing this live as opposed to in a back room somewhere so that if there is anybody else out there who happens to be an expert, 
in art, in art presentation, in selling art, in providing art, in fundraising, using art, or they happen to know something about what's really on the moon, we'd love to hear from you. And when we come back at the uh, top of the hour, I will give out the phone number so you can join this very lively, very real conversation. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we're talking about a doorway through Alan Bean's consciousness to the dark side of the moon. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. It is the uh, witching hour here in the land of enchantment, in the high desert, as Art used to say. If you want to join this uh, very lively conversation, what you want to do is call 8802. And we do have someone on the line. I'm not sure whether they're listening or they want to join the conversation. Uh, maybe, uh, Keith, you could kind of, you know, talk to them and find out what, what they want to do. Because uh, I don't want to put anybody on the air who does not want to be on the air. But if you have a level of expertise or a question of how this campaign is going to proceed, or you have a better idea, for a high leverage impact for the funds 
for the campaign we are raising and where we might apply more pressure, more leverage, a more uh, directed uh, set of efforts, uh, we'd be open. I mean, this is part of why we're doing this kind of transparently and in the open as opposed to the proverbial back room. So let me bring my guest back on. Uh, who did not get uh, time to say something they wanted to say before the break? Robert Morningstar. Oh, Robert. See, every why Robert sits there and doesn't say anything? Because you haven't brought him on yet. Because I don't have to. Everybody knows Robert Morningstar. He okay. is our civilian intelligence analyst. Everybody who dies goes through his living room or bedroom right. on their way to heaven <laughs> or wherever. And he yeah. needs to be a little more proactive and simply speak up. Robert, oh, well. thoughts? Well, I speak up when I have to have something to say. See, I, I knew I, that. I knew. What a good idea. You gave me a lot to uh, comment on, but um, I would like to say that uh, with regard to McCarthy and that uh, global theater there, um, people always complain about dangers to democracy or threats to democracy, but when you see democracy in action, uh, people are critical as if they want. Well, uh, look, let's not do the political thing tonight because that's tomorrow night. Okay, well, here's the, the actual thing, just to comment on that. But um, the bean painting, there's something that's been bugging me about that bean painting for a long, long time. Which one? And the, the astronaut in space. The reaching for the stars painting. Yeah, reaching for the stars. And it's really subtle. Now, some people think that he may think he was painting literally, but he also painted symbolically. Now, I took a look at the face in the helmet. And there are two ways of looking at that uh, image on the helmet. You can either think that it's mirror and you're seeing his arm reaching for a star. But if you look into the helmet, it looks like a monkey getting zapped in the third eye by enlightenment and illumination. Hmm. No, so, you should take a look. That, 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 would, that would obviously yeah. fit with the idea that consciousness on Earth emanates from a much higher source. Yeah, and possibly suggesting the alien connection, like that primitive, uh, the concept of uh, the hybridization of mankind himself. You mean the uh, so 2001... Okay, you have to really blow it up and really scrutinize yeah, it. Yeah, you're talking about the 2001 Space Odyssey model from Arthur and uh, Stanley. Yeah, there, so that he may have been channeling that theme as well. Or not. I happen to think that, uh, you know, space aliens are not, you know, really very relevant here except for the family that if we were inspired to a higher consciousness, it's transdimensional, which of course is what the moon is. It's a huge, incredibly resonating structure that if you live there under that multi-level dome, the enhancement of the physics would be beyond belief, certainly for most people, but not beyond measurement. And it's really interesting that uh, there have been several nations now that have sent spacecraft to the moon with instruments to measure the physics, the hyperdimensional physics of the moon. Capstone for one, Artemis for two, and the Denuri spacecraft for three. Robert just gave me a really good idea. Oh, good. Uh, why don't we uh, Why don't we drop a line to Tom DeLong and just get him involved? 
I'm glad you brought up the subject of uh, disclosure. That was one of the things that I really wanted to talk about last week uh, when uh, Stephen Bassett was supposed to be on. Yeah, and, Stephen has had some serious issues yeah, that he is, a, that I'm I'm not going to you know tell tales out of school, but he yeah. is reconsolidating uh, certain things, and he will be on in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we've exchanged emails. Uh, he had some very curious things happen. We've all had crashes. Yeah. We've all had crashes. I'm recovering to this week, tonight. My computer's going to come back online. But I wanted uh, to talk about the deep state and the importance of disclosure now in, uh, in regard to the attempt of the United States government to wrest away from the military-industrial deep state complex the authority and the powers that they arrogated to themselves in the name of national security with regard to the ultimate secret, the alien presence on Earth. As I got to mention briefly that the U.S. Air Force conspired with the University of Colorado to produce something called the Condon Report in 1969, which was premeditated to allow the Air Force to divorce itself from public association with UFOs and flying saucers. And the plan was to basically fake uh, a scientific research uh, so that they could pawn off a lie on the American people that would allow the Air Force to exit stage right and say, we are no longer involved with UFO because there are no UFOs. And the University of Colorado has uh, thoroughly studied it, and they say there are no flying saucers, there are no UFOs. But when you look in, in the uh, index of the cases they study, they cite 1,000 cases, and 700 of them they did not solve. So there's also letters from uh, professors to the committee chairman saying the trick is this to you know to conduct the the to conduct the research and come out with the uh, preconceived uh, conclusion. Now that is something that resulted in legislation undercover. Uh, well, undercover and underhandedly, the U.S. government gave away its authority to the military-industrial complex deep state. And now the Congress is trying to get that back because there's a whole bunch of contracts involved in that transfer, not contracts only with the military and the deep state, but with the alien presence. The United States has had treaties with alien races, ceding them regions where they could work. The tall whites are given a region over there in Area 51. All you have to do is, is listen to Charles Hall, read his books, or see the, uh, the movie, Walking with Tall Whites. And you'll know that the United States government has had an agreement and a treaty allowing tall whites to settle in that region of Nevada. And also, grays have a Greys have sway over Canada. There's a lot of activities of greys in Canada. And all of these things um, were hammered out secretly, juridically, legislatively, and now they have to be reversed. So to get rid of the deep state, the most important thing is to expose 
the reality of UFOs, and that will obliterate the reason for the deep state's existence. The National Security Council and the deep state came into existence to keep this big secret. When the big secret is out, that thing can collapse of its own dead weight. Yeah, I'd like to add something to that. And uh, I know, Robert, you've mentioned this before, but we were going to we were going to talk about it, and we haven't had a chance to yet, but maybe we can hear a bit. Sure. And that is that the um, Einstein-Oppenheimer memo to, right. I believe it had to have been Truman, um, yes. is essentially telling the President of the United States um, that we it, it's time for a new treaty, and they use the word covenant. It's time for a new covenant, a new treaty with these yes. entities. Yes. And uh, what's fascinating to me about that is that that memo um, these were two Jewish men, and that this memo basically uh, is telling the president, well, you know, the previous covenants were with our people, so uh, I think that uh, the uh, the Jewish people should make the new covenant as well. I was struck by that because when I read, I've read that for a few years. I've I've uh, waited until this time uh, to share it with all of you and to uh, you know get public attention on it. But I, when I read that um, an agreement, he said uh, we should hammer out an agreement, we should have an agreement that assures the uh, ex- continuation of our culture but keeps the alien presence uh, secret from the rest of the world, which leads to all the machinations in the UN and all the military departments of all the NATO nations and all the nations of the world uh, conforming to this uh, stricture. You're right. Yeah. You, right after the end of World War yeah, Guys, I, let me in, 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 you know, kind of interject something. Many, many years ago, after I spent a very extraordinary all night and morning with Betty and Barney Hill when I was at the museum in Springfield and uh, brought some ideas to the table that uh, uh, my friend Alan Hynek then had pursued through hypnotic regression through uh, Dr. Simon, the psychiatrist in Boston that they had gone to to reveal their so-called abduction story. Um, I realized at this incredibly tender age that we would never crack this ET problem by going through the UFO doorway. And that's why, you know, later years when I realized that we were taking images of artifacts on Mars, the Sidonia region, and then revealed to myself through other research that there was stunning stuff in our own backyard on the moon, I really focused on the artifacts and the archaeology because archaeology stands still And even if we got in contact with some or more than one extraterrestrial race, we'd have the same problem we have with humans, which is how do you know somebody's telling you the truth? Whereas ruins and libraries and archives stand still. So I've really been focused like a laser on artifacts. And I'm I'm saying tonight, in the midst of all the high drama going on on around, uh, you know, the... uh, people like Mellon and the uh, ATIP program at the Pentagon and the new office of anomalous, you know, whatever, and the NDAA that the president signed, I'm still betting in this horse race on artifacts over UFOs and ETs and guys out there. 
because they, if they ever wanted to tell us the truth, they've had 70-plus years, if not 70,000 years, to tell us the truth, and they don't want to. But we, with our own hands and technology, can reach out, touch this stuff that was made by somebody, probably our own ancestors, find the libraries, and do our own digging into our own extraordinary prehistory without having to depend on the truth tellers or the liars from out there in any way, shape, or form. So what what, what I'd like to do, and then we'll get back to this conversation, I want to go through items 9 to, I think it's uh, uh, 11. I think it's 9 to 11, okay? 42? No, no, no. It's not. No, 9 to 13, okay. So uh, item number 9. This I found the other day, just a few days ago, as part of the logo at the top of the Denuri South Korean first mission, unmanned mission to the moon website. And unfortunately, Keith has not connected from last week the link to the actual website. Uh, He can remedy that. All he has to do is look at last week's Sunday night page. It's there, just connected to Denuri homepage, Lunar Image, and people can go. And it's part of a rotating set of graphics that in Korean, and that's where the verisimilitude comes in, I wanted to reproduce in the actual Korean what this homepage of the Denuri website looks like. Denuri is South Korean for enjoy moon. It's two Korean words kind of smooshed together. Why do they want us to enjoy the moon? Well, obviously, because of what is there. Now, you look at that image, and it looks, when you first look at it, like, oh, it's a nice piece of art. No, it's not. It's a real spacecraft photograph taken through a special polarizing camera on the spacecraft that was put in their logo so someone could leak the real moon seen from Denori as it approached with that incredible gauzy ring around the moon. Now, in number 10 companion this same full moon image which is not the same as a full moon as seen from earth that's the right hand image taken by the arcanos uh, satellite in earth orbit a few years ago in a vacuum in space in white light and it looks like the familiar full moon that you see from earth with mari chrysium up there at the edge of the moon in the two o'clock position that dark uh, spot that very large dark spot if you look at the same position on the left hand the Nuri image it's not there why because you're looking at a slightly different hemisphere moved to the left by about 20 degrees or maybe 19.5 because this photograph from Denuri was taken from space from a significant different angle than any image ever possible from earth and again there's that brilliant glowing ring. Well, what is the ring? If you look at the right-hand image, the ring is not there. Actually, it is, but it's very, 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 very faint and very minuscule on the scale of the, of the images. It's blatantly visible on the left-hand Denuri image because the, the domes are made of glass. Glass reflects light polarized fashion if you create a camera with polarizing filters, and in this case, Denuri has two cameras 
with polarizing filters at right angles to each other, light vibrates in these different planes. When it's circularly polarized, it's vibrating in all planes, meaning like, like uh, going back and forth across the center at all angles. But in polarized light, there are preferred angles where you will see the reflections. And if you change the polarizing filter, like a Polaroid pair of sunglasses, you can screen out the polarized reflections from water and from glass. So the image that the South Koreans have posted and leaked with nobody's permission, and I'll prove that in a minute, they basically leaked this as a graphic hoping that someone knew what they were seeing, i.e. maybe us, and they got it out that way. Now, if you look at number 11... Uh, Richard, before you go on, why is the ring not visible in the, on the right? Because it's not a polarized light image. You can change uh-huh. a polarizing filter so it enhances or eliminates the dome. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And in white light, given that you're looking at reflections at all polarized angles, lost in the noise. It's not amplified selectively. That's what filters do. They selectively enhance parts of an image. Look, by the way, how dull the bright parts of the moon are in the left-hand image compared to the right. It's because the filter is eliminating the normal brightness of a normal full moon you look at with the eye and is looking instead at plain polarized light coming from the glass. It's isolating the glass that remains on the near side of the moon. Then you look at 11. This is another one of those art pieces, except it's got a art image of the spacecraft pictured above a real photograph taken through this polarizing camera of the real moon, masquerading again as a piece of art so the sensors wouldn't catch it until it was too late. And then number 12, that turns out to be a color view taken of the moon's surface from Danuri in the orbit of the moon. And it's got Mare Smai, that's the dark areas underneath. Look at the incredible prismatic refractions at the left and right of the image. And look at the dome grading off into the distance with the Earth and the Danuri spacecraft artistically labeled and put on there to make it look like a piece of art when in fact it is a smush. It's art and real data presented as a graphic to get it out beyond the South Korean and or NASA sensors. So a few days ago, remember I've been saying for several days now that it's very weird that the Koreans didn't publish any images. They go to the moon for the first time and they get there and they take no pictures and they don't post anything. They don't brag. They don't tell anybody about what they've done. It's just like, you know, a black hole. It's like it just went away. Well, a couple of days ago, maybe they were listening. They finally posted three images of the Earth and the pole, the North Pole of the moon. Seen close up from lunar orbit, their 60-mile orbit. And what I noticed was that when you look at it casually, it looks like there's a horizon there. It's a vacuum. There's no dome. Except if you do a little processing, which is what the inset for right is, if you do the right filtering in the computer, you can bring out 
the magnified image from the reflected light from the Earth's clouds as a as a bar across the dark horizon, acting like a lens, magnifying the light reflected from the Earth. And where there is no Earth to be refracted, there's no scattering, there's no light coming from the dome. It's because, again, they're using a filter to basically eliminate. And then if you kind of look at this on a high contrast monitor, you can see that they've taken the image, uh, not my inset, but the image itself, and they've basically taken out the dome and they've left imaging artifacts because they did not do a seamless job or when they were instructed by the sensors to do this job, they did it in such a sloppy way that anybody who knew what they were looking at can see the residual ghost image of the dome that they removed from this PR image. That's how I know this is all going to hit the fan in the next few months. Either the Chinese, the Koreans, the NASA NDA people. Remember, it's now legal for all the NASA people that know where the photographs of the real moon are buried, where they're stored, including the newest ones from Artemis. They can now go to this Pentagon group, this multidisciplinary office, and under the NDAA signed by the president, without fear of legal retribution, they can blow the whistle on what has been going on. And if they're fortunate and they're part of the crew that has access, they can actually legally provide the real images to the, to the uh, UAP office. And this will begin an obvious exposure that can only you know, be like an avalanche rolling downhill. It will get bigger and bigger and bigger with time. And that will make the bean painting stunningly important and priceless. And they can, also, they can also go to the mainstream press, to the so-called media, and take the same images and the same documents and the same disclosure. And based upon uh, Biden's new executive order, uh, the media cannot be touched. Okay, we got about two minutes to the bottom of the hour. Was that Ron? Yeah, I had a short uh, short thought. It'll fit uh, on both what you said and uh, what she just said. The uh, it reminds me of a of a Clash song, which I'll paraphrase the line out of it, and then I'll tell you why. You know, it says these are remember your rights. These are your rights as long as you're not foolish enough to actually use them. Uh, I think that, I think. I think that aspect of, uh, of it is, and I apologize for not getting the transliteration perfect, but uh, thinking back to that Truman era memo, uh, Oppenheimer and Popeye or whoever the other person Eisen, was. Eisen, uh, I mean, Popeye, I, Einstein. Einstein, Einstein, Oppenheimer. Okay, I didn't want didn't to say um, Albert's name in vain. Uh, the uh, thing is, you know, what that, you know what that sounds like? Look at it dispassionately, you know, as in a differential analysis. Uh, they're talking about aliens. They're talking about outside influence. And they're discussing it with each They're stating it with each other as if they were two poachers on the king's land. And they, they decided, okay, you can kill deer as long as you don't get in my way. And uh, I'll, you know, and uh, 
that while I'm killing deer and you, you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. It sounded like they were two poachers, two bandits representing two viewpoints. One, the excellent local point, politics. Excellent point, but we're at the break. I don't want you to miss yeah. the break. Okay, very okay, good that, point. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's it. Thank you, Robert. Okay. We're on the other side of midnight. One half hour to go. We shall return. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. We have gremlins. Anyway, back to the last half hour on the other side of midnight. My guests, Robert Morningstar, Barbara Honiger, Ron Gerbron, Georgia Lambert. And I believe, Robert, we were going to come back to you. See, my main problem with the whole UFO thing is that it's been so hopelessly politicized for the last, you know, 70 plus years that, you know, who are you going to believe? There's, there's nothing unless someone provides evidence which other people can check that you can believe about any of these stories, including tall whites and grays and all this. Whereas the artifacts, if other nations go there and they actually find them and they verify what there is sitting, waiting for humankind to open the door to, it will be incontrovertible 
because it will come through multiple eyes, multiple nations, multiple missions, and multiple cultures simultaneously. Struck by the echo of John F. Kennedy in the Congress's demands, when you started reading the Congress demands this and this every year, reported this and this and this, I said, oh my God, that sounds like that. A paraphrase of John F. Kennedy's November 12th letter to the CIA and the and NASA and the Department of Defense and everyone else involved, the services, that it seems to me that Marco Rubio and the group, the pro-disclosure group, that's after more information. If you want to get rid of the deep state, let's look at what, what the deep state has done, not just to our country, but to the whole world over the last 70 years, as specifically yeah, the Yeah, but last Robert, they're not going to go away without a fight. They're gonna, they're, they're, that's they're, the cancer they're, of democracy. That's the cancer on the republic. But they're, the but they're not going to go away without a fight. People. And as it operates now, it's, it's the enemy of, of the world. So I'm adamant, and I'm speaking for John F. Kennedy, who died because of his battle with the deep state. He died to warn us of what he saw coming. He exposed their plan. So we have to uh, take up arms against the sea of troubles that have been heaped upon us. Uh, so If you again, are in a war, the Robert, is can you hear me? John F. Kennedy. Can anybody hear me? To the deep state for information on the UFO. Oh dear. And once the UFO is revealed, the alien presence is revealed, there will be no need for the deep state. Their incarnation came forth to maintain the ultimate secret. Now, going back to Barbara and her noting that uh, Einstein and Oppenheimer were both Jewish and took on, use the word covenant. It's not a coincidence that MJ-12, the, the MJ in MJ-12 stands for Majestic Jehovah. So this was a, a religious cult as well that took over the, the big secret. And Barbara, I thank you for bringing that to my attention because when I read that phrase and think, uh, thinking, uh, would ensure the continuation of our culture. I was, was thinking globally, universally, world culture. I wasn't thinking in uh, such uh, parochial terms as, as you saw. Your oh, no, I, I think, it's, I think it's, it's very parochial. And what's fascinating to me, um, in fact, um, I will, uh, Richard, I will send to Keith and Cynthia to post that Oppenheimer Eisen, uh, Einstein memo to Truman. Okay. Um, uh, under under my items or Robert Morningstar's items or both. But what's fascinating to me is that when you read it, what struck me like between the eyes, like a baseball bat between the eyes, is my God. These two world famous Jewish men are telling the President of the United States covenant we made with these folks, these whoever they are. Um, that's what you're calling the Old Testament. Either one of them were were known because they were Jewish. I mean, there I, is I'm a not... cultural point. This is, this, point. this is a point that involves not physics but culture. So, Ron, oh, hold your yeah. comments still. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's nothing to do with physics. It has to do with culture. Go ahead, Barbara. Well, 
you, you know, the, the so-called chosen people. The question is chosen by whom for what? Hmm. And uh, well, uh, hang on, hang on, Barbara. Barbara, are you aware of Stan Tennant's work? Absolutely. Stan Tennant proved mathematically that the hyperdimensional model has been encoded, recursively encoded, in the ancient Hebraic version of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Which me, then you have to ask the question: Well, where do they get it from? And he, you know always thought they just kind of random walk to metaphorically something close to something physical. I think mm-hmm. it's because the Jewish people are the chosen of somebody upstairs in a much larger conflict. And that information came from their progenitors, their handlers, their contact, their, you know, sponsors, and that's it's because why, of the contact. It's because they were chosen yes, to be the, the liaison. By that group. Yes. Not not by everybody, but by that group and the, and part of the internecine conflict between cultures and races and and and, and species on earth or, or different facets of the species is because this has been a free fire zone using a term from Vietnam and ETs have played fast and loose with culture, with genetics, with history, with us. And we need to be liberated, which is why I'm totally looking at artifacts and not going to believe any aliens or ETs who show up because they all have a vested interest in keeping us down on the farm. Mm-hmm. That's my comment about bandits sharing the loot. The loot. Yeah, I talk about them as pirates, the pirates. Yes, I, you gave me the idea for it came out while I was listening. Robert says um, uh, they got the uh, the deep state got space travel and the wonders of the universe, and all I got was Velcro. <laughs> See, uh, uh, again, in, in, in the whole UAP UFO conversation, Robert, I don't think there's one in a thousand of the in crowd that knows about the whole solar system and the artifacts all out there. Yeah. And that if we introduce, if hang on, hang on, if we introduce that through the post or the times into the conversation, so it cannot be ignored, they have to look inside at the, what we already know. It will blow the doors off any agendas by ETs that show up and say, "Oh, we're the we're the good guys." Well, the cost is prohibitive. As Barbara who cares? Said. Yeah, and what I, what I want to go back to is the geopolitical element of the Einstein Oppenheimer. No, wait, wait. Letter. Let me stop you right there. Why do you you can't afford a hundred thousand, right? I, I don't want to talk about. The I'm. Washington you're Post. on the show tonight to talk about this campaign. Please address the campaign. I think you spent an hour on the campaign in the second hour, and uh, uh, Robert, we abandoned the topic. No, but, but uh, allow, allow Robert to complete his thought, please, about the Oppenheimer-Einstein memo. It's critically important. Yes, it right. is. Because okay, it explains why we're going through the Great Reset, as they call it. The Great Reset. The destruction of world culture to superimpose a new paradigm on all of us. And that is explained by the Einstein-Oppenheimer letter, where they go into the 
the technicalities of a world where there is no longer any land to conquer or any land to, to give. And so the celestial uh, settlers, they've decided, says they have decided to settle on Earth. So what do you do with them? That's the basic premise and reason for the letter. And they go into all the different ways that they could be assimilated or absorbed is the way, is the way they use it. And the secret, uh, the secret, the keeping of the secret is ultimately what they decided. But they go through something, definitions, legal terms yes. regarding the ownership of land, including res nullius and res communis. Robert, do you and know how many Earth-like planets have been discovered? We're through... talking about one planet here, Richard, not all these Earths. They didn't know about that. Why would they come here when they had the whole galaxy to choose from? Why would they want to... Why would somebody want to come here and own anything when there's a million other planets much because better? Because they can't live on their other planets. Of course they, they can. How and do you know? Because we've got data from Kepler and... and they need uh, resources here, including water and DNA. With hyperdimensional physics, you make those resources out of nothing, out of the vacuum. This is yeah, all an archaic... This is an okay. archaic, nonsensical Nobody conversation. It has no I meaning. Mean, we should have, have a program about the memo. So, well, that's what I want to focus on, is what they decided to do is to re realign the whole earth to accommodate the aliens right. and it's that nobody owns any land there are no borders and the aliens are going to be absorbed but they're the talking about are, a treaty they're talking if about there's no if there's no such thing as borders why is this planet sequestered so if you if you step it up in scale you say no 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 you guys are just getting no the point is they say they had to get rid of borders and internet and nationalities and nations in order to create res communis. That's uh, never worked. That's another of form of socialism. It's never, it's never worked. Because, it's never worked. Course, it can't. It can't. But well, they they have to, to, you know what this be. sounds like to me is a Nazi agenda yeah. from the breakaways who managed to convince yeah. two brilliant idiots who were politically as naive as you can imagine that this was what was necessary because they had no conception of the real physics and the real galaxy and the real potential for real ETs. Right. So these two men were as anti-Nazi and anti-Axis power. Well, of course, the guys didn't say we're Nazis. They show. Barbara, let's get nuts. That's not a muddled issue. It is quite possible, and there are many, Nazism and Judaism, they do work together. Oh, absolutely. Avram Stern, the, the leader of, of one of the terrorist gangs, Lehi, uh, the Stern gang, wrote to Stalin in, in uh, 1943 asking for aid, military aid against the British, because his plan was to create a combination of a communist and a fascist state. Mm -hmm. And it, was, it is a fact that the Germans who migrated to create the first kibbutzes uh, were given permission to do so by Hitler and funded under something called the transfer agreement. Yes, Hitler, I understand. See, Robert, you are, you are, you are, you are proving and it, was, it was even, it was even memorialized by a medallion with the swastika on one side and the star of David on the other. Robert, exactly. you are, you are proving yes. my, you are proving my point. Do not trust I'm, aliens, period. Trust exactly. libraries, We're trust listening. artifacts, trust archeology, span trust, mm -hmm. you know, stuff all over the solar system that is oh, incredibly mul multiplicative 
that the truth is there. Do not trust aliens showing up basically with a document that says to serve man. No, it's not their document. It was Oppenheimer and Einstein's document. No, but yeah. they interpreted but the their what it, what they thought was their information. They put it in human terms, but where did they get it? What propaganda did they swallow? Because when someone showed up and said, we're not from Earth, they bowed down. It's a nasty tendency the human race has to think of these folks as gods. Well, I I think it's more likely that they just wanted to hold the covenant again. Well, how do you know there even is a covenant? For once, I say, from my curmudgeonly uh, standard (laughs) cynicism, that Richard is the only one of of you guys that isn't just painting lipstick on a pig and arguing over what shade of lipstick looks better. Hey, Richard. I'm sorry, Robert. There's no basis. That go, you can't. You have to be able to te- to go back and back and back and back and back. Just because somebody's clever enough to reinforce their arguments in a hundred different directions Ron, does not make like them true. Ron, I don't yeah. like your metaphor. It was insulting. And if we're painting lipstick, which on one? A, you're kissing which it. One? <laughs> which one? Lipstick on, a pig? lipstick on a pig. If we're painting lipstick on a pig, you're kissing it. Okay. Okay. So, I was looking for a neutral one that wasn't too dirty. Uh, yeah, well, I, I wanted to get back to serious conversation here. Oh, Robert. Oh, Robert. No, it is it is a serious conversation. It's incredibly serious. I think the bottom yeah. line of what Robert Morningstar is saying is, yes, look at archaeology outside of Earth, but don't leave Earth out. Well, there's almost nothing yeah. that's on Earth that has been preserved because it's been assiduously eroded or destroyed. You don't know. You don't know that. Well, I'm going to have John on, who's been doing some excellent work in another couple of three weeks, to talk about Utah and uh, what's there. Um, he's got a he's got a research plan. If we raise enough money with this uh, campaign, we can give some of it to John Womack to find if there in fact are extraordinary. Uh, time capsules or buried libraries or ancient artifacts right here on Earth, but all the visible stuff has been either changed or mangled or destroyed. Uh, you know, the Giza Plateau is not the way it used to be. It's a pale vestige of what it used to be. And every time something is found inside, Zahi and his companions steal it. So you're not going to get truth from the Egyptians. Um, so we need to go off planet. And we've got nine human beings, civilians, planning to go around the moon in a couple years with cameras and social media and their own eyeballs. And that's where at earliest moment I see a stunning breakthrough is possible if we can inform them of what to look for. Remember, what you can't imagine, you do not see. Say again. Barbara? It is not inconsistent to do what you're proposing, which is the very reason that I bought this painting, after all. Um, uh, I just think that there are phenomenal discoveries to be made on Earth. And as you know, we've, I've been on your program a number of times about where I know that is. It's called the Sirius Point, not far from the pyramid. Again, hang on, 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 guys. Again, it's no single point failure. We don't have to choose. We can do all of these things. That's my point, too. That's my point. 
Just don't yeah, trust aliens theory. showing up. I want to say that Richard is right in his assessment that this is redolent of the the Nazi philosophy, and it only goes to prove that the paperclip Nazis succeeded in infiltrating the entire U.S. federal government and intelligence and has taken over. And it is a global Nazi plot. And the yes, plot I agree. Is, but see, I think it's – uh, Robert, let me, let, me, let me give you some, some kudos here for a second. I think there really are aliens or ETs. I'm refer ETs because I think they're related deeply. Have you ever read the original German, high German contact notes from Billy Meyer? I've read the original translation. I haven't read them in German, but I I, I admire Meyer. Meyer was talking about the ozone hole in the Arctic in 19. No, no. Meyer got his information from someone. Yeah, so-called mm-hmm. someone off planet called the quote Pleiadians. Pleiadians the Pleiadians yes. were and are extraterrestrial Nazis. Yes. Just, just read that. Uh, when I read it, I thought, oh, I mean, the light bulb went off, and I thought, oh my God, this was also, you know, Adamski's Venusians. You know, they yeah. they, they changed their mm-hmm. form depending upon the era. Because it was a program to suborn the earth, seduce us into following the same traps we did before. You know, and that's why the artifacts are so important, because they stand still. Uh, there's another interesting thing about the Meyer contact. I was struck by the name of the uh, Pleiadian who contacted him. It is the same name as the name of the fallen angel, mm-hmm. Morgan. Is Semiyaza. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is one of the most unusual names on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, Semiyaza. Yeah. Can you can you can you spell yeah. ritual and symbology? Yeah. I so I think that the Pleiadians who contacted Meyer were playing all kinds of mind games and pretending to be Anunnaki or fallen angels or giving the hint well. They're also they part of what I would call the serious complex. Remember, Sirius, the star system, when I was giving a speech many, many decades ago in uh, uh, Belmont, Washington, which is a little town with the, with the college about 50 miles to the east of Seattle, somebody came up during the, during the in, intermission because my stuff tended to go long, so I would break it into part one and part two. And she claimed to be representing Syrians from off-planet who were not happy with what I was doing. And of course, I dismissed her. We never got there. I turned around and she was gone. And I dismissed her as a nut. Now, I have a very different view because I think there's all kinds of ET efforts to suborn this inevitable disclosure to make us go down the ET doorway as opposed to the doorway that stands still where the truth is hiding behind, which is artifacts, libraries, archives, ancient evidence, evidence, and histories of our own incredible past, beginning with the moon. I agree. As as someone said just a little while ago, I think it might have been Richard, uh, never trust the aliens uh, out of hand. (laughs) I mean, think think of any sci-fi franchise you want. When the, when the Star Trek crew wants to go onto some alien culture that they haven't been in contact with, what's the first thing they do? They come up with local clothing, right? That, 
that includes names, and it include it would include names like Sami Yazda, if you were going if you did a little in prior prior investigation as to as to their cultural roots, because you're going there to mess with their heads, meaning us. Our heads. Well, remember, so in my model, Ron, in my model, yeah. we're talking about family. We're talking about, you know, intergalactic mafia. We're talking about pirate. We're talking about people who have owned Earth and who is on it, mainly us. Go back to Charles Fort. We are property. Yes. And the owners do not want the livestock wandering off the reservation. Yeah, and they're almost as evil as my relatives. So, yeah, I can imagine they're pretty, you know, it's a pretty hard situation. Yeah, you're right. Well, look, look at the Arabs and the, and the Israelis. I mean, the Jews and the Arabs, um, they they had the, the same father. They're relatives. Happened. They're family. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're trying to kill each other. Yeah. Yeah. So this and is why this is why this to bring, all to, religions are manufactured. We we have we have five minutes left. I want to bring this back to yeah. the campaign. Robert, do we have your permission? Stay out of the New York Times. <laughs> okay. The painting is our doorway, courtesy of Barbara, her incredible oh, generosity and her vision wherever it came from in the middle of the night. Because if this is handled properly, and we've got around this table this green felt table sitting in the ether, the right expertise to do this properly, all we now know, have now that we need to show up is the people who will begin to donate to this campaign. And I guarantee you, we've got the goods. We are going to change history and you can help us change it with us, but we need a little gas in the gas tank and the bean yep. painting is how we're going to get there. And Richard, mm -hmm. um, you missed a trick. I mentioned it to you before, but I really think at least some of your lead in music with this image in the bean painting uh, that's called Reaching for the Stars, should you should be playing um, Impossible Dream, the final coda, which is to reach the unreachable stars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or anything by Blink-182. Doesn't anybody else know who Tom Long is? Sure, I do. Yeah, you, yeah, we all the know. The Stars Academy, the uh, the head guy from the the rock band, Blink One Eighty Two. See, I'm not certain about the Stars Academy and the you know member stalking horses and false sheep and false clothing, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I told you an off the air story about uh, an encounter with one of those one of his people myself uh, a couple of years ago, and I wasn't cer certain what they were up to either, but. There's plenty of money there, and they might pay for the advertising. I, I'm opposed to the idea of, of predictive squandering of the funds that come in. See, they're, they're, I am very um, apprehensive of big donors. I like, yeah. as they say in the parlance these days, small dollar donations because they can't be bought. They're honest. And the beauty of this campaign is that everybody gets to donate. Small, medium, large, and you, you, you don't know who's going to donate whatever. And the highest donor, when we reach the goal, gets it. You, you should promise me immortality, and I still wouldn't donate $10 to help CNN hire a new anchor band. I mean, it's, yeah, but, you know, don't want to, it has to be, it has to be neutral. It has to be something that doesn't impinge on things. I mean, it, no, it's Ron, it has to be, it has to be, it has to be where the audiences are. 
the audience you're yeah. trying to reach, which is influential. I'm sorry, us peons don't count. The people who read the Post and the Times and the Wall Street Journal, they do. They, they own the world. They just don't know what they've got to own yet. I don't and think I that the winner should be the highest bidder. I think that the winner mm. should be, over the course of the time, the one who donates most. That is precisely. That is what yeah, it is. That, so you would have to add up the, the donations at the end to see who is the real winner. That's why we invented gets... something called computers. But, but that's oh. exactly what it says when you go to the donation page. Oh, very good. Okay. Yeah. No, this is all being tabulated by a neutral third party, PayPal, and their you computers. Yeah. And it is tax deductible. Because we're doing Thanks it through. Kinthea, you want to say a few words? Well, we don't really have time. We're going to rerun this probably in another week or so. And then we'll do another one. We'll give people an update as to where we are. And there will be new information coming out. Remember, the Japanese are on en route to land a first spacecraft on the moon in the next, uh, by April, by my birthday, as a matter of fact. And our friend Nova Spivak told me two nights ago that he's got two other spacecraft heading for the moon that are carrying archives the same as he constructed and put in um, uh, Musk's Tesla to the surface of the moon. So there will be three archives, the Barashit mission and these other two spacecraft that will give us other venues to talk about what has happened. Okay, we have run out of time on this rather interesting three-dimensional conversation in a 4D universe. Tomorrow night, we're going to do part two of Things to Come in 2023. And we've got Marvin Jones with us, our citizen historian, who's going to give us a unique backdrop on the extraordinary soap opera of Ken McCarthy getting the speakership against the backdrop of the actual founding fathers and their structure of the U.S. House of Representatives. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. And we are clear. Well, that was lively. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's supposed like to be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If we all agreed I, on everything, it would be po- pointless and boring. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, I would like to propose that we, uh, for once, uh, and I can't believe that I'm the one saying this, but uh, we should try and forego the after party because Keith has only had two hours sleep in the last Oh, he's got to get up to the crack of dawn because he's doing something with – a major production in in uh, Washington. So yeah. Yes. So okay. yes. So he needs to sleep. So we should all just go away. I, I, That's very I, thoughtful. Okay. You go first. I agree. Yeah. You go yeah. first. Okay, okay guys. All right. Uh, Thank all right, you, Barbara. All right, I'll do that. You scurrilous dog. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Yeah. Great pod. Good night, everybody. Thank you all. Good night. Keith and I are going to stay up. <laughs> all right. Good show. Fun. Bye. Oh.